you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, Two True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling, and it really helps us out. So please... Use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Be sure and tell them Large Marge sent you. <laughs> and now it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. I sense a disturbance in the Force. You always sense a disturbance in the Force. <laughs> I don't like this. No! Really pissed me off. And now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Count me in. Lordy, lordy, look who's 40. It's Star Wars <laughs> Monthly Monday number 40. You're a dork. Star Wars Monthly Monday has gone over the hills, into middle age. <laughs> through the river, through the woods, over it's, the woods. It's, under the... it's very quickly catching up to Scott's and my actual age. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, we have a very special Star Wars Monthly Monday for you this this month, folks. You know, it occurs to me that we say this all the time, but you know what? In this case, it's the literal <laughs> truth. This time we can confidently say, yeah, we got a good one for you this month. Guests galore. Two, count them, two guests. Are we telling them who our guests are? Nah, I think we should nah. keep in suspense. Ah, good. Yeah, Make we got burn it. we got comics, also all sorts of awesome stuff planned, which you will soon find out. <laughs> um, before we get to our uh, our comic bookiness, you have any um, Star Warsy news that you gotta? Eh, sorta, sort of, kind of, sort of, maybe not really. Oh, um, for lack of a that better that sounds place, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> For lack of a better place to plug this in, I just want to gloat a little bit. I actually oh. scored something off of eBay recently. I got 
Marvel Super Special number three off of eBay for a song, baby. And it is the Marvel Comics adaptation of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ah. Never had this before. We were just talking about this. Um, is it Walt Simonson and Klaus Janssen? It is. You nailed it, sir. It is Walt Simonson and Klaus Janssen. Yes, I think we were just talking about this on, what was that? I want to say it was the Jaws commentary that we just did. One, some, some recent episode we were talking about this. And it put me in mind of, of hunting up some of these uh, adaptations that I've either never owned or I haven't seen in a long time or what. And I, I scored this one and it's really, really pretty. I've never owned this, but I remember when you used to own it. And I remember not thinking much of it as a kid, but now looking at it, I, I think it's really awesome. I didn't like sort it as a like kid. like the indie it, one. Yeah, well, it, this one doesn't have like the the likenesses. Like Paul Neary, right? Who is played in the movie by you know Richard Dreyfus. In this, he's like a he's like a tubby William Shatner. And I remember really not liking that as a kid, but now I look at it and it, and it really appeals to me because it's again it's that you know through a mirror cracked version of. I have this idea somewhere. I seem to remember. Maybe it's even in the super special. That when they started drawing it, I don't. The movie might not have even been made. They might have been doing it off a script or something like. I seem to remember that him going like, I didn't know who the characters were going to be looking like, but you know there was a general description of what kind of person they were. You know, so could very well be. Could very very well be. Um, but yeah, I, I, that I I thought that was really cool. And uh, real quick. I want to just kind of put out a plea to the listeners. If there's anybody out there that has a collection of, there used to be a, a an in-house, I guess you would call it a fanzine that Marvel used to produce. It was called Marvel Age. I'm uh, not only am I trying to complete a collection of that, but I'm actually I'm looking for a specific issue, issue ten of that magazine. You know, it's a, it was a comic size. You know, I mean, it looked like a comic. It was just not as uh, not as thick. You know, not as big a page count. It was like an in-house ad type of thing that you know would sell for I don't know, like say like a quarter at a time when comics were sixty cents or something to that effect. And it was basically just a little promo in-house, you know, in-house promo thing that that Marvel would do about you know their uh, their upcoming projects and stuff. But issue ten of that. Um, is a Star Wars related issue of Marvel Age. I I lack that issue and I'd really like to own it. If anybody has a copy that they want to uh get rid of, get in touch with me. I'll uh, I'll happily pay you uh, you we'll know, a, a, a fair bit, yeah. Hmm? Talk we'll turkey. Talk yes. turkey. Yep. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk womp rat. I'm I'm sort of like you. I've only got a kind of sort of shout out combination. And the shout-out this month goes out to Dave Atterbury and Dave Atterbury's friends. Dave Atterbury, hero of Two True Freaks. Are you listening, audience? Has some friends who like to buy Legos. Tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of Legos. I thought it was a mistake how many Legos they bought. And he talked them into buying them off the wonderful Two True Freaks Amazon link. And this month had been really slow on the Amazon link, as I had expected, being post-Christmas, everybody's broke, 
really, it was really so nice that Dave Atterbury has won himself a complimentary Two True Freaks t-shirt for being a Amazon hero and helping to, to pay the bills. So that's sort of Star Wars-y since the, the wonderful Two True Freaks t-shirt does have a sort of Star Wars, th- not even sort of, it has a Star Wars theme to it. Yeah, it's pretty much a lift of the of the <laughs> Empire Strikes Back logo, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> but with a little with a little Star Trek thrown in, too. Yeah. We made sure to get our Star Trek in there. So thanks, Dave Atterbury. You, that's awesome. Keep them coming. So other listeners, you know, if you're, if you're able to corral a bunch of your friends in, don't be shy about telling us <laughs> how you did it because <laughs> you never know how you never know what will be i'm i'm digging through my junk trying to get out of rid Stop of my it. junk i might be able to <laughs> i'm digging through my items i have in the house <laughs> and uh you know i'm i'm finding little little treasures that, that i've been thinking oh this could be a prize for rewarding our our listenership <laughs> for for some I don't need this shit anymore. This person can have it now. <laughs> exactly. I got to get this out of the house. How can I uh, <laughs> <you> write? <laughs> if we were really official, I'd be writing them off as business expenses. Let's see. Landfill or Dave Atterbury? Eh, Dave Atterbury. There we go. <laughs> I don't know. That means postage. But uh, <laughs> landfill's a long way away. <laughs> No, seriously though, thank you, Dave. That is that is awesome. I Although I have to say this, if that. if the if any of you listeners are 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 throwing away any of your old toys and collectibles, you can mail them to me. That's okay. Mm-hmm. If if I you know I'll throw them away for you. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> especially those especially those old Star Wars toys. I <laughs> I know how I know all the proper ways of disposing of those. <laughs> well what do you say are we ready to get into this extra sized episode yes it is it may be extra extra sized but i think you guys are going to thoroughly enjoy the uh the little surprises that we have for you later in the episode yeah because it's actually it's actually less comics than we usually do but oh boy, we got a good comic. Yes, it, the comic has gotten more time devoted to it because of its proportional awesomeness. <laughs> Long ago, in a galaxy far, far away. There exists a state of cosmic civil war. A brave alliance of underground freedom fighters has challenged the tyranny and oppression of the awesome Galactic Empire. This is their story. Stan Lee presents Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of all. So this is Star Wars number uh, 86, almost said 76, 86. This is the August 1984 issue. Original cover price on this was 60 cents. Written by Randy Stradley. Penciled by Bob McLeod, Tom Palmer, finisher, Rick Parker, lettering, Glennis Wine, coloring, and Nascenti is now the editor of this title. 
And Jim Shooter is billed as Ed in Chief, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. It sports one of my favorite covers of the entire series. It is a beautiful cover by McLeod, and it shows a um, a red and blue jumpsuit-clad Princess Leia, and I think she looks very like 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 super heroine-ish on this cover, and she's dangling over this just like vast chasm. And her only support is the outstretched arm of a stormtrooper, which she's clinging to with one hand as her other hand just kind of, you know, her other arm just kind of dangles. And he's asking the question, still feeling high and mighty, princess? And I, I can actually hear like that, that what is it, Australian, uh-huh. you know, clone trooper accent in this, you know, which, which I think is really cool. Uh, but I, seriously, I love this cover and I remember being just really really excited by such a simple thing as as Princess Leia sporting a new look on this cover you know when I first picked this up you know I bought it right off the stands and you know looking at it now she reminds me an awful lot of uh, of Kitty Pride you know from uh mm, from right. work on on the X-Men but I really like this outfit. You know, it's a it's a, a a red and blue again. You know, it's almost like a superhero type outfit, but it works very well within the confines of um, of Star Wars. I, I think it's really really cool. So, the story in on this one's entitled "The Alderon Factor," and it does take place, as the uh, editor's note on the opening splash informs us, before. Return of the Jedi doesn't specifically place the story. It just says it's before Return of the Jedi. Although I, I guess I should add, it is also post Empire, so it's between. It's set between Empire and Jedi. So we open to a scene of Luke Skywalker chasing Princess Leia, and they're you know ch- he's chasing her down this hallway that uh, I think is very reminiscent of the uh, Tantive Four from the opening of you know the original Star Wars film. At least to me, it is. And that's probably largely because, you know, R2 and 3PO are in the background in very similar poses to the one, you know, the ones that they were in the first time we ever see them, you know, in episode four aboard, uh, you know, aboard the, the, what would you call it? The blockade runner. runner. Yeah. Blockade runner. So anyway, you know, Luke, he doesn't like the idea of Leia going off on this latest mission of hers without him. And he tries to convince her to at least take a blaster along, but she refuses and she cites, you know, cites the usual, you know, these guys need to trust us, you know, we're better and we need to prove that we're better than the bad guys type of rhetoric. And and she leaves and she hitches a ride with a band of uh, space ninja turtles and see I just want to say for all those people that are freaking out about the Space Ninja Turtles, see, right here, that they, they come from outer space, see? <sighs> that whole thing is so stupid. Have you have you followed that whole thing? I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about Yeah, no idea. All. Okay, well, that's... You, you just thank your lucky stars that you don't know what I'm talking about. Why are there Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in space now? I mean, that's the only new, natural. The new Ninja Turtles incarnation that's going to come out uh, at the hands of Michael Bay. They're no longer going to be Ninja Turtles. They're going to be Space Turtles. Yeah. Oh, sure. Why not? Yeah. It's just like Josie and the Pussycats in outer space. (laughs) But it's... uh, We'll talk about this later. So We'll save this for Comics Monthly Monday. So anyway, she's she's accompanying these uh, Space Ninja Turtle guys to their world to try to sway them into the rebellion and, you know, yada, yada, yada. 
when they decide to show their true colors and they're selling her out to the Empire because their elder council has been taken hostage by the Imperials and they basically decided to do a hostage exchange, basically. They're going to trade Leia for, you know, for their leader people. But deals with the Empire, as uh, Lando Calrissian can well attest to, they never go <laughs> well for anybody. And the ship is rocked by laser blasts. So uh, seems the Imperials know that Princess Leia is on board this ship. And they're just as content to shoot the ship down and kill everybody on board, you know, including the Space Ninja Turtles, as let them land and, and do the actual prisoner exchange. So we get some really nice moments of Leia... You know, taking charge and barking orders and even manning one of the laser turrets. And, and there's a really nice dogfight, you know, chase scene with the attacking TIE fighters and stuff. You know, but at the end of the day, the ship is shot down and, you know, the lights go out for uh, for Princess Leia. But not before she has a chance to activate the spider tracer that Luke slipped her just before she set off on her mission. So elsewhere on this planet, Imperial Governor Wessel receives word of this downed rebel ship and uh, sets out for the crash site to ensure that there aren't any survivors. At the scene of the downed TIE fighters, a lone injured stormtrooper makes his way across the scorching desert sands and to the uh, aforementioned crash site, and he searches through the wreck, and he comes across something he really was not prepared to see, Princess Leia, you know, all bladdered, uh, yeah, bladdered, all bladdered and bladdered, all battered and bloodied. And she wakes up just as he's about to use this big pointed stick to free her. And she thinks that he's preparing to run her through with it. And so she quips that, you know, wouldn't it be faster to just shoot her? And he says, still acting the part of the princess, eh? He says, I figured with what happened uh, to Alderaan, you would have dropped that routine. I guess not. Now hold still. I'm trying to free your legs, Leia. And she, he actually calls her by name, which really surprises her. And she asks if they've actually met before. And the trooper then does something that I'm pretty sure has only ever happened one other time in Marvel Star Wars where he takes off his helmet. I'm pretty sure that, that the only other time we ever saw helmetless troopers was in that issue where the two troopers were lounging around and they... Uh, remember there was the story with the with the ex-Rebel base that had that weird mineral that that held like holographic images right right and they were they were like smoking cigarettes or something remember right they were like something. in an underground cavern yeah so this really wasn't done very often but it's done to great effect here and he, he takes off his helmet you know and reveals his face to princess leia and i i you know i think it's got to be said i think the the face is remarkably consistent with the look of the clones that <laughs> isn't we that get. amazing how that worked yeah. out it, yeah it's 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 very Django fat like very so, yeah yeah absolutely a little bit of the punisher too yeah a little bit but and, uh, yeah very Django fat that's uh, it's amazing when the comics do that they've been doing that quite a bit <laughs> yeah i love it i really do 
And Leia, she doesn't recognize him, which seems to irritate him a bit. And he says, well, no reason why the pampered princess of Alderaan should remember a, a common servant, right? And Leia is really taken aback by this. She's horrified that this man, this Imperial stormtrooper, is actually from Alderaan. And, you know, as you'll no doubt recall if you're a Star Wars fan, you know, the Empire... <laughs> blowed up Alderaan real good in the original Star Wars. Just real good. Sim- you know, it was pretty much just a simple demonstration of of the might and power of the Death Star. I mean, th- there was really no good reason to do it other than to prove that it could be done. So, the trooper, you know, he gets kind of upset with, with Leia and the things that she said, and he, you know, yells back at her that, you know, she shouldn't judge him, that she has no idea of the life that, you know, what his life has been like, the life that he's led, and the fact that, you know, service to the Empire has provided him with with more of a purpose and a home than Alderaan ever ever did, ever was for him. And they argue, and the trooper, you know, he, he struggles to free her. She's trapped in the wreckage of the ship. And as he's trying to set her free, and they're arguing, this pair of large weird alien creatures are, are kind of stealthily coming up on them unnoticed. So Leia and the trooper, they they continue this verbal jousting of theirs, and uh, he asserts that it was Leia's father, Bail Organa, that actually doomed Alderaan because he defied the Empire. She's very upset by this, and, and just as he succeeds in finally setting her free of the, the wreckage, she actually springs on him and knocks him over and pins him to the ground just long enough to make her basic argument points that her father was a great man that stood up for what he believed in, even if it cost him his life. And he had a dream and he passed it on to Leia and the other men, members of the rebellion of, of something better than the empire, you know, something more noble for the galaxy and that the Empire, you know, for all its ships and blasters and all its power and might, it it can't fight a dream. And the trooper, you know, he listens, but then when he's finally fed up with all this, he flips Leia off of him and he argues back that, you know, a dream doesn't feed you or keep you warm. And he reaches into his chest plate to show Leia something and he reaches in and he pulls out this chain that's hung around his neck and... He says, he tells her that this is all that's left of your dream. And it's a tiny chunk of just, you know, just lifeless little rock. And this is actually a piece of their homeworld. This is all that's left of Alderaan. And right at that moment, of course, that's when the creatures decide to attack. And uh, one of them bites the trooper in the leg and like lifts him bodily off the ground. And uh, he drops his blaster and Leia... You know, she seizes it and she's got it and she hesitates for just a moment trying to decide exactly what she wants to do. But eventually she she does essentially the right thing and she shoots the creature and she saves the trooper's life. And then together they run away from the creatures. Now in space, Luke, Lando and Chewbacca, they're approaching the planet, you know, in the Millennium Falcon, they're responding to the uh, to the call from Leia's little transponder thing. 
Elsewhere on the surface of the planet, Governor Wessel, he's closing in on Princess Leia and he's uh, riding along with his troops in uh, this really swanky looking imperial dune buggy thing that I think is pretty cool. Leia and the trooper, they continue to run away from the creatures, but they soon find themselves cornered at the end, the edge of a cliff and they have nowhere to go at this point but down. So Leia orders the trooper at gunpoint to go first and then she covers with him with you know or for him with blaster fire and the trooper just jumps off the cliff and he lands on this very small little outcropping of rock but when leia follows him and she jumps down when she hits the ledge the ledge collapses and we get the actual scene from the cover of the book acted out where leia's dangling over this precipice and she's held by one wrist and clutched in that hand is the blaster and the trooper tells her essentially you know you give me the idol i give you the whip you know and but she's fearing that if she hands over the blaster which is really the only leverage she has that he's just going to drop her but eventually she comes to realize she doesn't really have a choice so she hands over the blaster and he pulls her up And he says, you know, you underestimate me, princess. He says, besides, I owe you from saving me from the monster. And he he drags her up and then they lay there, you know, side by side for a moment, just kind of panting. And the the trooper actually comments that they make a pretty good team and that it's too bad that they're on different sides. And she sees this as an opening to, you know, try to explain to him that it doesn't have to be this way. And she... You know, as she's making the point, she starts to lay her hand on his chest and she inadvertently brushes that chunk of Alderaan. And one of my favorite parts of this whole issue is when she does this and she actually holds that piece, you know, in her hand in the trooper, he suddenly just gets this very melancholic look on his face it's the first time he's really displayed an emotion other than anger at Princess Leia. And he, he tells her simply that he bought it from a trader on Tatooine and that it's his personal souvenir of Alderaan. And it's a nice moment and everything, but it really pisses Leia off. And she says, you know, she doesn't see this so much as a souvenir, but she sees it as a symbol, as a symbol of the murder of millions of innocent people when Alderaan was destroyed by the Empire. And so then they get into it again. And it's the age-old argument of, you know, know, I'm not responsible, I'm just a soldier following orders kind of thing. And there's a, a really nice, brief, tense moment. And it looks like Leia is actually getting through to this guy. And he seems to falter Uh, just a little bit in his stance and in his position. And then he just a great series of panels where he just resignedly puts his helmet back on and he points his blaster straight at her. And he says, Leia Organa, you are a prisoner of the empire and, you know, essentially come along quietly. And uh, so a short time later, you know, the two of them, they emerge from the Canyon just as, Basically, the entire story comes together. All parties converged at essentially the same time. Leia finds herself face to face with Wessel, but that's short lived because then the Millennium Falcon shows up and starts shooting up the place as a distraction. 
and it comes in low and it's a, it's a really great sequence where the falcon is hovering low and the boarding ramp lowers down and luke comes out to the end of the boarding ramp and is essentially holding out his hand and calling out you know leia come with me and so she makes a run for it and wessel sees this and he's not about to let her get away so he orders her killed he shouts out you know kill her shoot her and the trooper his his natural instincts and his training and everything kick in automatically and he reaches for his blaster to to follow his orders and his hand snags on the chain that's still exposed hanging around his neck and it actually snaps off in his hand and he finds himself holding this tiny piece of Alderaan. Wessel in the meantime has managed to snatch up a blaster of his own and he whirls around and he's preparing to gun down Princess Leia as she flees and all of a sudden this blaster bolt from off panel comes and shoots the weapon out of his hand and he turns and it's the trooper and he's telling Leia she was right and that if she'll have him he'll go with her and she talks him down from just outright murdering Wessel in cold blood and and essentially is like come on he can't hurt us anymore let's go and they make for the lowered ramp of the of the hovering Millennium Falcon, and so Leia's being assisted aboard by Luke, and she's you know safely up the ramp, and she turns to help the trooper, and he's hit by blaster fire from his former comrades, and so then he's dangling limply, you know, and, and Leia's barely got him with one hand as the Millennium Falcon lifts off and it's high, high into the sky. You know, they're preparing to, to leave the planet and it's all Leia can do to hold on to this guy and, and support him. And she's calling to him and, and hoping and praying that, you know, she can hold on and he slips away and he falls. And so Luke and, Le- and Lando uh, haul Leia aboard and, you know, they're apologizing for what happened and they ask who this guy was, but she's completely overcome and she just stands there crying and she shows them the stone, you know, her last link with her past and with her home and with this, this guy, this young man that she's never, she doesn't even know his name. And the fact that he sacrificed in the end, everything, including his life to save her and, so that her dream could live and that's the end of the issue and uh just a powerful powerful story and one of my absolute favorite issues of this powerful <laughs> what what do you think of uh of star wars 86 oh i love it i love it always one of my favorites this is one i didn't originally have i used to i remember i remember this was one of the um comics that would be in the phase bags you know what i mean yeah yeah you'd have the cardboard phase bags yeah and i remember (laughs) like pulling this out of the cardboard phase bag to read yeah yeah the the art in this is brilliant the story is is great it's just it's star warsy all around it's it's a great star wars story it really really is it's uh it's it, it packs a punch it really does. It, you know, emotionally, it it's it's kind of a hard hitting issue, and uh, and I I really have always enjoyed this story quite a bit. You know, as, as vague as my re- recollections can be, 
with some of these stories. This is one of those issues where, you know, I can flip through, you know, cover images and instantly, yes, okay, I know this issue. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas uh, there's other issues where I just look at the cover and go, I have no idea what goes on in this one. <laughs> and, but this one is always one that has, has stuck with me because of that, of that punch at the end of the story. You know, it's, it's a real slug in the gut, you know? And I mean, this is hardly the first time this type of story w- has ever been done because I remember that there was a, uh, a great issue of the planet of the apes, black and white magazine that Marvel did that for many, many years was the only issue of that magazine that I owned where there was an ape that was injured and lost the use of his arms and a human who was injured and lost the use of his legs. And they actually strap themselves to each other and the human becomes the ape's arms and they have to work together to survive. And so that's like a, the amazing two headed transplant. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of this same story where they hate each other and they're diametrically opposed to one another. But if they want to survive, they have to work together. And if I remember that story correctly, at the end of the story, they're they're all healed up and they fight. And I I'm pretty sure only one of them walks away and I can't remember who it is. But again, it was that type of story where, you know, it, it had that emotional connection for you. You know, that 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 kind of a punch at the end of the story and that slug in the gut where you're like, wow, you know, that was powerful. And, you know, for that matter, this isn't even the last time we're going to get this with Star Wars because there's another story that's late in the series where we'll see this concept of the likable bad guy again. And it's actually another Princess Leia story. That's a really good one, too. Well, she has a thing for likable bad guys. <laughs> yeah, this is true. I like the what I'm going to call the Luke box on the cover. You've got uh, Luke and his Bespin fatigues doing a pose right out of The Empire Strikes Back, except that his Bespin fatigues are colored uh, like white, like stark white here. I think that looks really cool. And this is the first time we've seen it. We're only other, we're only going to get it one other time in issue uh, 102. That's the box they use as well. But other than that, that's, you know, that's it. We're going to get it this time in 102 and they never use it again, which is weird because it's actually a really nice one. And while I was researching that, I noticed we completely missed something on the last two issues. Han and Chewie were in the box up there in the corner for the previous two issues and we completely missed it. Because up till that point, they had... uh, uh, R2 and 3PO right. up in that corner. And then there were two issues with uh, with Han and Chewie on the cover, and somehow it just kind of sli- you know, slipped right past us. What do you got on this one? Well, you know, it's funny because it's like another one of those issues that you love. There's maybe not a lot to say because there's really not much to quibble with. Um, once again, in the foreseeing the prequels category, we've got that wonderful chase through i think he calls it like the tortured landscape of of the planet that's very similar to the pod race Mm -hmm. and and the way that it's illustrated that the ships are flying through these canyons and overhangs and stuff is very much like the pod race and that's just a very well drawn dogfight. you know you get a real feel for it 
um, it reminds me when we were talking about the Walt Simonson issue. Yes. And yeah. and he made the the dog fights have a feel like the dog fights in in the movies, you know, which is very hard to do in a in in a you know still medium. And uh, this this is another great example of of that. The way he did it in this was by sort of drawing the ship, and you can see the tracing pattern behind it. Mm-hmm. And so so you see where the sh- and it works really well. It's funny you mentioned Walt Simonson because page five, as I was reading this or, or rereading it, reminded me a lot of uh, there was a story. Uh, it was one of the the Marvel UK stories that was reprinted in in Pizzazz, mm-hmm. where Walt Simonson had drawn it, and it was a story with uh, Luke and Leia. It was a, it was a Star Wars era story, you know, for a first movie era story. And they were being chased. I want to say it was on like a, a snow planet. And there was a dog fight and like, you know, outcroppings and overhangs and stuff. Very much like on this page. And this page actually reminded me a lot of that story. I, I don't know if you know the story I'm referencing or not. No, I don't think I do. I like the look of this ship because it, it almost looks like a Y-wing. Like the nose of a Y-wing with like like Star War or Star Trek rather. Yeah, it's got a little cells on the side. Yeah. Well, it's got a little Star Trek shuttlecraft and Star Wars mixed together in it. Yes, yeah. It's got yeah. the World War it's got a straight up World War II like gunner, you know, the cockpit on it looks right it's elongated like a like a fighter plane that you would see. Well, I guess that's yeah. the whole not the cockpit, but the gunner's chamber. Right. It looks like you would have a person facing forward and a person facing backward in it. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really neat. It is a little Star Trek-y. That's... Yeah, it's cool, though. Page 9 I like a lot because I never get tired of seeing downed TIE... You know, crashed TIE fighters. There's I, there's just something about that image that I like. And we, we've had some really good comic book stories come out of this concept of a, of a oh, TIE crash, fighter tie crashes fighter. somewhere. Yeah, you know, we had the day after the Death Star, which was a really good story. You know, issue twenty-five, where they're on that. You know, Luke and you know, Luke's in his Buck Rogers rebreather suit with R two on that right. little asteroid. You know, off. Uh, you know, in, in the in the Yavin system, that was a really good story. I, I just there's something about that that I really really like. Page eleven. Have I really just missed this all these years, or is this artistic license or what? But page eleven, last panel. There's actually a holster on that trooper's leg has that always been there and i just never noticed it before i don't know no i don't i don't ever remember seeing it but you you gotta figure they'd have to have a holster somewhere somewhere yeah exactly i i think that's really great i love that panel by the way that's a beautiful panel it reminds but me I, of the punisher a lot yeah the way he's yeah, posed and the way he reminds me of the punisher you should just have like a, a pistol or a shotgun in his hand instead of a pointy stick it's it's a very uh, Zek looking male figure right there. You know he, he does look very Punisher like, but like like he looks like Zek's Punisher, I think. Jumping way ahead, uh, page twenty, third panel, the Millennium Falcon arrives. That's just mm-hmm. that's gorgeous. That well, is one of you, the best Millennium Falcons I think. You I've know ever what's seen. awesome about that? You get the feeling of the power of it because it's landing. But it's landing UFO style, you know, yes. straight down. 
and you can see behind it the dust and mm -hmm. smoke kicked up by the engines of it to keep it hovering. And mm -hmm. it's just like, you can see in the just the of it, you know? Yep. It's awesome. And that scene with Luke opening up the hatch and stuff is very reminiscent of episode one when they first tangle with Darth Maul. And you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're it's absolutely even on right. a desert desert planet, you know? It's like, come on, let's go and whisk him away from the trouble. See, when I was reading this, I, I had a, a half-formed image in my mind of, and I was trying to remember, when, when have we ever seen the Millennium Falcon hover like this and somebody at the end of the ramp? And I think you just solved that for me. It wasn't the Falcon at all. It was uh, it was Amidala's ship in, right. in Phantom Menace. But yeah, it's very much like that. You know, the ship's just kind of, you know, holding steady there while while they struggle to to climb up the ramp. Yeah, very reminiscent of that. That's cool. And uh, really, my last note, you know, on the on the story proper is just. Uh, Again, you know, it really packs a punch. I think it's so sad that the, 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 we never even get a name for this guy. I, I wonder what would be more powerful, it, not getting his name or if, if say, he'd only has, had a, a designation. Yeah. yeah. You know? But one way or the other, that I think that's – I think it's powerful. I think it's a really, really, really good story. I like a couple of the ads in here. The one on the inside front cover – it's completely ridiculous. I love this. Atari Shaft. Madness <laughs> at Maxis. <laughs> These kids. Manholes <laughs> of Venus. That sounds like a porno game to me. <laughs> I'd like to go visit the manholes of Venus for sure. What <laughs> Manholes of Venus. What kind of game do you call that, Maxie? And then Maxie's going, later, baby. <laughs> <laughs> They they walk out. His friends walk out of it. One of them's going. Your old man bought the wrong computer. And they <laughs> loser. <laughs> Manholes of Venus. Your dad bought the porno computer. Who's gonna ever want to use porno on a computer, moron? <laughs> yeah, Maxie, oh, you're a loser. Uh, <laughs> so then he goes out and he buys. What has he got here? He's got Donkey Kong, Robotron, Centipede, Pac-Man. He's what got I'm, all the What I'm concerned about is whose dog is that just wandering around town with no leash and no owner wagging <laughs> its tail, man? Put that thing down. It couldn't be rabid. <laughs> what the hell? Well, also, you know, you've got you've got an open bottle of, of soda and you've got a soda can just sitting right there on the counter with, with the television and all the video games. That's just a recipe for disaster right there. It is. It is. It's That's very just... irresponsible of Marvel to run this ad. <laughs> I think this was a slow advertising month for Marvel because my issue, does your issue have the Mark Jewelers? Yes. The, the extremely, those are so cheesy, and those used to be in the middle of, these are, these remind me of the ads that were in the middle of really bad, cheap novels, like the ones we would find near the paper yes. mill with their covers ripped off. Yeah. You know, the, it, 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 all of a sudden in the middle is a glossy color insert for fine jewelry. Who the hell reading Star Wars 86 <laughs> in 1984? That was you and me. All right, look at these things. These, oh, okay, granted, this is night, you know that, but you know these are forty dollar, twenty dollar, twenty five dollar rings. 
you know, gold ring, goldy colored rings with diamond L's on them and stuff. Who the, what, who the hell is going to buy this reading Star Wars? It was, I think Marvel was just like, I don't know, they'll pay us money to advertise. So I'm not going <laughs> to tell them that it's 13-year-old boys reading it. But just I, weird. That hasn't changed at all. Because yeah, even today, you know, I'll be watching like, you know, Cartoon Network or something. And all of a sudden, like a maxi pad commercial comes on. And I'm like, who who the hell do they think their market is on this? You know, I uh, so it hasn't it hasn't changed much over the years. Maxi pad commercials, no matter what I'm watching, I'm like, ha ha, you're wasting your money on me. <laughs> <laughs> wasting that value. Yeah, you're getting nothing from me. <laughs> I like the uh, the Secret Wars figure ad across from page 17 there there was a, a great fairly recent three i think it was a three-part episode on uh hey kids comics where they they covered the uh secret wars maxi series really really good stuff well worth listening to i enjoyed that very very much and uh, i actually had a couple of these figures i know i had a, i may still have my captain america i'm not sure i know i had cap and Doctor Doom, and I think I had one or two other of these figures as well. Plus, I had a black, uh, black-suited Spider-Man that they're not showing in this picture. Plus, you could have gone to the Dimension Conventions, <laughs> June twenty-third and twenty-fourth, nineteen eighty-four. Yeah, in New York sure. City, uh, Stanley Harlan Ellison and George Takai. Oh my! What else have we got? There's a really nice Fantastic Four ad. In the very Just, back, yeah, in the very back, and uh, this is a nice little John Byrne illustrated mm-hmm. piece here with the uh, with the FF of the time. We have She Hulk as a member of the FF. I really like that uh, that postman. It looks like Mister McFeely. <laughs> I think that's supposed to be Willie Lumpkin, isn't it? Right, right, but he still looks like Mister McFeely. <laughs> he does look like Mister McFeely does. <laughs> and I always liked as as cheesy as it is. I always liked the cover, the uh, advertisement on the back cover for all the video games, where there it's graffiti all over the inside of the bathroom stall. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, it's like for Cubert. Oh no, there's Frogger on there. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. But I always, I've, you don't know how many times in life I've been tempted to see the one on the on the bottom right where it's it's way down it's almost on the floor and it says i am not short yes i've wanted to do that in bathroom stalls just as a callback to this ad right it you know all the way is down that all you've wanted right. to do in bathroom stalls pretty much yeah okay <laughs> i'm sorry you just said it i had to follow through on that <laughs> oh man that's uh, just to take a little side. I want to bemoan the bathroom stalls are too clean these days. I don't know if they found better cleaners for them or people have just get, given up writing their dirty shit on the walls there. But I miss it. I used to. I used to be one of those guys. I wasn't one of those shy peers who didn't want to pee in the in the urinals. But I would always head to the stalls to pee because there would be some reading material. <laughs> and it just ain't the case anymore. I mean, I expect that sort of shit when I go to Disney World. I ex- I don't expect to see any graffiti on the <laughs> on the bathroom walls. But you know, come on, when we're when you're driving down the thruway and you stop at the truck stop, take a whiz, you expect some uh, some pretty vile shit written on there to <laughs> to, 
<laughs> fill in your time while you're, you know, while you're doing your business. And it, I don't know what's wrong with our culture that we don't have that anymore. The next time you and I take a road trip, I think we should just mess with the attendant at at the rest stop and go up and complain that there's not any decent graffiti on the walls. <laughs> I remember when I used to refer to, I used to, when I, at my college, I had preferred stalls. I had stalls that I would go to because I knew that they were the ones that people liked to write in. And, oh my God, it was awesome. I learned so many, so much good poetry that way. That's why you were hanging out in stalls all the time for the, for the reading. For the poet. I, that's why I always, for the articles. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right, we'll be right back in a couple minutes with our special mystery guest. Deacon the Geek is a podcast for the geek and everyone. Please join your host, Peregrine and D-Man, each week as they discuss all the things that geek guys love to talk about from sci-fi, fantasy, and comic genres. For movies, TVs, comics, novels, and games, seek out Definitive Geek. Available on iTunes or at DefinitiveGeek.Podomatic.com. Mondays available the second Monday of every month at two true Hello and welcome back to Star Wars Monthly Monday. And as promised, we have a special guest who Scott was being all humble about it as we were leading up to this, but Scott's the one who, who hunted him down and pestered him till he agreed <laughs> to be on our show. And uh, we've been sort of actually tailoring our show the last couple episodes on the hopes that we could get him on here because of this very issue, which is actually one of just our favorite Star Wars comics of all time. So I'll let Scott uh, do the honors. Joining us is the artist of this issue, Star Wars number 86, Mr. Bob McLeod. Welcome to Two True Freaks, sir. 
Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We are uh, we are very uh, happy and honored to have you. Now, uh, I guess the big question right off the bat is, uh, uh, how did you land the uh, the gig for Marvel Star Wars? Well, before I get into that, can I ask you a question? Is is number eighty six actually your favorite issue? It is one of them. It's not my absolute favorite issue, but it is definitely, I would say, probably in the top five, maybe even the top three, because I think this is a fantastic issue. I really do. Um, I'll I'll put it this way. I don't know if I have a favorite issue, but like I've I've gone through, you know, like the Star Wars Marvel comics I have are not the original ones that I had as a kid. I've probably gone through like two or three sets in very you know because of various states of financial distress. <laughs> but Star Wars 86 is is one of the ones I've always it was one of the ones I didn't get on the original run. I used to have to go over to Scott's house to read it. But it was one that I, once I got a hold of it, I never there were there's like five or six issues that you know besides the the original movie adapt, adaptation yeah, that I just yeah. that I keep all the time that are just amongst my favorites and this one yeah, this one is just it just is one it works on all the levels, the the art, the writing, everything about it comes together, and just it's a perfect little Star Wars story. A well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's definitely my favorite of the issues that I did. Um, Randy Stradley uh, wrote the script and and just did a wonderful job, mm-hmm. and I I had a great time drawing it. I had done well. I was fresh off the New Mutants, pretty much. I had just left the New Mutants not too long before that, looking for another assignment. And um, I had inked an issue of Star Wars over Ron Friends. Uh, mm-hmm. I, what number it was, but not not too long before that, number 82 maybe or something like that. The editor of Star Wars at that time was the same editor as the New Mutants, uh, Louise Simonson, who might have been called Louise Jones at that time. I think so, yeah. And so we had a good relationship, and she, you know, she knew I was looking for something else. And for whatever reason, I guess it, the book opened up at that time. I guess Ron Friends was uh, offered something else, because I think he had been penciling it uh, up until then, uh, possibly. And um, He went to do black-suited he, Spidey right after the end of Secret Wars. Or, or at Maybe the time of Secret Wars, yeah. Yeah, and that was a big assignment, I'm sure. So I guess he was ready to move on, and um, Wheezy offered me a fill-in issue, uh, issue 83, I think it was, uh, Lando Calrissian story, and uh, I penciled and inked that, and I guess she liked it and offered me the penciling assignment on a regular basis. Now your work on the on the series is fantastic. I, I enjoy all the issues you did, but looking today, just uh, I, I was kind of refamiliarizing myself with both the issues we've covered so far and upcoming issues. I was actually surprised to see that there weren't as many issues as I remember. I, I think in total, it's only five or six issues. Five or six, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't stay on as long as I should have, which is the kind of story of my career. I tend to jump ship and and move on uh, pretty frequently. Um, there there were reasons which I I could get into if you want, um, but yeah, I only did maybe five issues. Yeah, I would I would if you're if it's safe to talk about, I would love to hear it. Yes, <laughs> we'll tell. Yeah, we'll take any information about <laughs> anything around there at that time period. Yeah, 
Well, unfortunately, uh, number 86 was such a good script, and I really kind of got spoiled by that script. So mm-hmm. the scripts after that, I felt, didn't live up to that one. Uh, they, they just kept, in my opinion, getting a little lamer. And part of that was, um, it was very difficult to work with Lucasfilm. You know, they, they wouldn't let you go in certain directions with the scripts. You had to stay away from what they were maybe planning for the movies, or um, you know, you didn't. They didn't want you stepping on their toes at all. So it was, I'm sure, a difficult assignment to write that series. But after '86, um, the scripts I, I just enjoyed kind of less and less until I got. Uh, I think '90 was the last one I did, and I just didn't. You know, I wasn't having any fun doing it. And plus, I I really prefer to pencil and ink my work instead of having someone else ink it. And it, Tom Palmer was doing a fabulous job. He was He's my favorite inker. Um, I learned a lot studying his, his, ink, his inking when I was coming up. And, um, you know, he was doing a masterful job, but he's got his way of doing things, and I've got mine, and I just wanted to do something more my way and, instead of his way. Now, we, last, I can understand that. Last issue, we covered... <clears throat> Excuse me. We covered issues 84 and 85. One of those two issues, and I'm sorry, I can't remember which one was which, but one of them was the one where you had, um, <laughs> it's that great cover that, that almost looks like a joke. It's like Han, Lando, and Chewie walk into a bar. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that issue. And I was noting while we were talking about the issue that it really looks like you had inked a lot of your own work in that one because you, you you do a certain process in the inking, and I'm sorry, I don't know what the technical term is, but when I kept looking at that, I just kept looking at it going, this looks more like one of your ink jobs than it did one of your, your penciling jobs. Do, do you know what I'm referring to with that? Well, I did pencil and ink the cover, um, but the inside is all Tom Palmer's inking. And I was actually doing uh, breakdowns rather than even finished pencils. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really Tom Palmer's finish on, on that issue. Um, I mean, I learned, like I said, I learned a lot from Tom Palmer myself. So my inking would often resemble his in certain ways. I see. Um, yeah, but he inked that whole issue. That was number 85. I didn't work on 84. I'm trying to remember which 184 even was, but yeah, it was it was the one where uh, where the three of them go to. Uh, it was like a bounty hunter planet, but there was just several like, if I remember properly, yeah, I really it was like, enjoyed that issue too. Yeah, it was like character. Cl- it was like I want to say it was a Han or maybe a Lando like like face close up shot, and just the way the shading was in, in the inking. It really looked like you had inked yourself on that one, so I, w- I was trying to figure that one out. But that uh, was just the incredible style of the penciling, right, shining <laughs> through. <laughs> now it's just the similarities between myself and and Tom. I actually did a full color painting of the cover for that issue, and Weezy didn't like uh, the painting for whatever reason. She didn't want to use a painted cover or I'm not sure why, but she didn't use my painted cover, so she just used the uh, black and white version. I'm a big fan of Tomorrow's uh, magazine back issue, and way back in in uh, issue 15 of that, 
you uh, they they used to have the rough stuff segment in there before rough stuff spun off into its own magazine and you yeah. had published in there original sketches for this cover for 86 and i was surprised to see how very different some of the pre- preliminary stuff was you know the the trooper and layer are both positioned very very differently from how they are on the finished cover i thought that was very interesting I don't remember doing uh, publishing those, um, and I've forgotten what the early roughs looked like, really, to tell you the truth. Um, so I'd have to go check that out. It's it's like the uh, it's like the camera. It's it's almost like one scene, and then like two or three frames later, if if this was a movie, where the perspective had shifted just enough that you could actually see more of the depth of the chasm that that Leia is actually dangling over, whereas the like the rough draft version, I guess it is the one that's in back issue. It, it it's basically the same perspective, but you just didn't get that that sense of of peril and what a sheer drop this really was compared to the the finished cover. Probably why I kept uh, working on it to try to get more of a sense of depth to it. So like she's actually dangling up a very high cliff. Right. I always like this cover because it's one of the few times. I, I remember this from when I was a kid, and it wasn't that I wanted this, but I just noticed it's one of the few times where the the cover artwork almost mirrors the scene in the comic, the scene where yeah. she's dangling and he's hanging are very similar, and very very rarely, usually on the cover you would get something that was almost like a, a tease or a jip of you know, and and now you know Superman, you you're dead and I rule the world, and you know I was always. I always liked it that that it actually reflected an actual scene from inside the comic almost exactly. Yeah, me it's too. I, I always hated those covers that kind of fooled you and <laughs> brought the comic hoping that scene would be in there and, and it never was there. Yes, this Marvel Star Wars has done it to us a few times in, in the <laughs> so far in the run. We've had quite a few returns of Darth Vader that ended up being holograms or, or something. <laughs> yeah, I hate she that. opened it in. <laughs> opened it up. Yeah. When um, you were brought on to start, when when an artist was brought on to Star Wars, what kind of um, did they have reference material just sort of hanging around? What what kind of stuff did they use for reference material? Did they just go out and buy you know the Star Wars magazines? But by this point, you know we're past the third movie, so I'm sure there was plenty of stuff. But did they have stuff just sort of hanging around the office, like toys and stuff to to use as? Boy, wouldn't wouldn't that be a nice universe to live in? That's no. what I always that's what I always want to picture. You know, that's what I always want to see is a bunch of artists with you know X wing fighters tipping them uh, at yeah. a different angle. Yeah, I actually did that, but no thanks to Marvel. They didn't supply me with anything. <laughs> you had to use your own X wing. I I was sort of suspicious of that. Yeah, I went out and got my own uh, models and and uh, magazines and reference. And it's a funny story. I actually. Uh, went to the local comic shop and uh, the owner of the comic shop in Tampa where I was living at the time had this collection of all the little Star Wars action guys. It was like, what were there, like 30 of them, 40 or 50 of them. There a lot, you know, a whole, he had this in a little case, you know, every, every little figure that they made. And I said, wow, this is fantastic. Can I borrow this, you know, so I can draw their uh, costumes and everything uh, correctly. And he said, sure, you can borrow it for a little while. So I took it home, had it in my studio there, and uh, my little two-year-old, uh, maybe he's three or four-year-old, I forget now how old he was, nephew came over. 
and saw them in there, and I said, and he asked if he could play with them. I said, no, they don't belong to me. They, they belong to someone else, so you can look at them, but you can't play with them. And so then he went up to my wife, and he said, does Uncle Bob just sit in there and play with those Star Wars guys all the time? <laughs> she said, yes, yes, he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to get my own reference. I, actually, you know, if, now that I remember, I think Marvel actually did have a box of some broken TIE fighters or, or some Death Star or something. I forget what all they had, but it was pretty useless. <laughs> In this issue, in 86... I can't help but think that these alien guys who are initially escorting Leia to their planet, they sure look like some sort of comments on the Ninja Turtles. Am I wrong in that? Is this predate the the Ninja Turtles? That's a good question. It, it didn't. I didn't intentionally uh, refer to the turtles in that. I'm trying to remember when the turtles came along. That was. Probably before that issue. It, it, well, it, well, what year was, was this issue? Like this is, 84? Yeah, this is 84. I'm trying to remember it's, when the Turtles were, were... I think they came around in the 70s, in the late 70s. Yes, because I had a friend who had issue number one, and it was already you know a rare collector's item, and that was about 82, 83, when he was living next door to yeah. me. Yeah, but no, these I just felt like drawing some turtles. <laughs> and I think turtles are kind of cool looking, so I, I figured I'd make some turtle aliens. When I first the the first panel that shows more than one of them on the in the shot at the same time, that was the one that kind of put the idea in my head. I was like, "Am am I seeing Ninja Turtles or am I crazy?" But then <laughs> You're I seeing turtles for sure. Well, you know, I, I know this sounds really, really, really super geeky, but on page four, Leia comments and she tells the guy, she says, "Unless you want to end up shredded," she says. And I said, oh. I said, okay, they look like turtles. She says shredded, which is a kind of a strange word to use that in would, Star Wars. I was like, that would, I don't think I, you know. So I was, That would point <laughs> to collusion between the writer and the artist, well, yeah, too. This is true, yeah. yeah on, is the, true. on the Ninja Turtle. Well, actually, that was drawn from a plot with, without the dialogue, without the exact dialogue anyway in it. And I don't think that was in the plot I was given. So after she saw that I made the aliens turtles, she probably... You know, I was a fan of the Ninja Turtles and uh, made a little reference there. Were you given just pretty much carte blanche as far as uh, vehicles and, and things like that? Because Chris and I are big fans of vehicles that are invented for Marvel Star Wars. And uh, this really cool Imperial Dune buggy in this is just awesome. I would have loved to have seen a toy of it. Is this your own creation? I'm trying to remember. I think it must be because I don't. I don't remember seeing that anywhere. I think it must be, but I, I can't tell you for sure. It's too long ago. It's very cool. I, I think that I think that would make a fantastic uh, action figure toy. I really do. I like the giant rock creature that attacks them. It reminds me of like a combination of a Jack Kirby creature and uh, something um, Al Williamson would draw too. I, lo I love just big, blocky, weird, slug-like yeah. creatures. I would have to get the script out. I've got it at home somewhere, I think, and see if that was suggested by the writer or if I just, if she just said make a monster and I came up with him. I don't remember. I'm cleaning my studio out. I'm moving my studio from the basement up to my second floor, and um, I found some old scripts, and some of them were Star Wars scripts. 
So I probably have that one. I can't guarantee it, but I think I have it. So I'll look and see. That would be great. Oh, I'd be so yeah. I'd be so curious to see. Now the format of our show is that you know, we're we're kind of playing a game with the listeners where we're not spoiling ahead. And it's been my understanding that there's actually a number of of our listeners that are not familiar with this material, so they're actually learning of this from us, which is always kind of odd for me when I think about that. But so in the in the well, interest, how old are you guys? Um, we're, we're about to turn forty four this year. Okay. Yep. So we were, we were what when this came out? We were what eighty four. We were, yeah, right? we were yeah, in high school. Yeah, we were still in high school. Or sophomores in high school. But you know, so in the interest of of you know not trying not to spoil things ahead, an issue that's coming up soon, you know, coming up fast, is the issue with uh, let let's say the new Dark Lord. And I'm just curious, did, did, is that your character design on her? Because they pretty much did stick with that design past that point. Oh, my gosh. I wish I had thought about this before the interview a little bit more. <laughs> let, me, let me try to remember for a minute. That's okay. We don't really do any research <laughs> either. So it's, <laughs> I, it's not going to be shocking to our, our longtime listeners, that's for sure. I don't want to take credit for somebody else's work, but I believe that was my design. I think she just asked me to come up with a female Darth Vader. Right. And that's what I ended up with. I don't, don't hold it to me because I'm, I'm, I can't be positive, but I'm pretty sure I, I came up with her. Now, again, we, we don't want to spoil the reveal for those that may not know. So I, I, I'll, I'll just ask you very gingerly, did you know who she was at the time? Yes, you did. Okay. Now, what did you what did you think about? Uh, did, were you familiar with that character? Um, to a, to an extent, yeah. I mean, I thought it was cool. It was, it was a good idea. I thought. Were you a Star Wars uh, fan at the time when? Oh when, yeah, uh, I was a huge fan. You know, I was up in New York when Star Wars One first came out, and the for for whatever reason they they gave tickets to the whole Marvel office to go see it together. And so we were some of the first people in the country to see it when it premiered in New York. And we were just, the whole office was just totally blown away by Star Wars. Just that opening scene where the, the big ship comes floating in, you know, a little bit at a time, and it just keeps on coming. <laughs> and you just yeah. don't realize, how can it be that big? And it just keeps on coming. It's something our younger listeners don't quite understand as, as no. much as just how, what a huge effect that had. It. Yeah, you can't appreciate it unless you were around at that time and there was nothing like that before that. You know, you, you had the Star Trek special effects where it was just people with rubber masks and, you know, <laughs> there was just basically no special effects. And then this movie came along and we just couldn't believe it. Yep, I, I had a friend of our family who was in visiting California and he lucked into the into, you know, one of the first viewings of Star Wars and came back and... He had to be about 22, 23 years old at the time, and uh, he was gibbering like a madman. You know, he was like grabbing my parents, going, "You don't understand what this movie is. It's revolutionary." Blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> and I was a big Star Trek fan, so they're like, "Oh, we'll take Chris to it," and that was the end of that. Yeah, it had a huge impact on all of us. I, I was a big fan, and I was really excited when they uh, offered me the chance to draw it. You know, it was a big. Uh, Big thrill being able to draw the comic. 
Now, Marvel has, uh, or excuse me, Dark Horse rather has, uh, you know, really picked this franchise up and, and run with it, and is really doing uh, exciting things. And doing, you know, just doing a little bit of basic homework on this issue and everything. Randy Stradley was a name that uh, just didn't ring any bells with me, and I looked him up, and then I felt foolish because. He's uh, one of the writers at Dark Horse right now, still working on Star Wars today and, and doing a title that I really, really enjoy, which is the uh, the Dark Times title. Somehow I just didn't connect the name. I don't know why. But with him over Actually, at... Uh, I, think, I think Randy was one of the founders of Dark Horse Comics. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was either an editor or uh, one of the publishers. He had an integral part in the beginnings of, of Dark Horse Comics. Have you guys maintained any sort of contact or friendship or anything? Any chance we might uh, we might get you over at Dark Horse doing some <laughs> Star Wars? That would be no, awesome. You know, I, I don't think I've ever even met Randy. Uh, if I have, I've forgotten. I uh, I live you know out of the, out of the state now, and he's out west, I believe, in uh, Oregon or someplace wherever Dark Horse is. Um, so no, I I don't know him, and that's pretty much our only association. I think. I'm excited. I didn't know he was still writing Star Wars comics. I, my thought on rereading this is that he really had, and it's rare in the writing of of these Star Wars comics, you know, for for better or worse, that you get to somebody who really understands the feel of how Star Wars works. And this felt like a Star Wars story. It felt like a sort of Lucas canon type right. Star Wars story, and that was. That was those always stood out. And Scott, you were saying on Facebook earlier, this was his like first writing assignment. Yeah, or something? I, it completely blew me. Now, keeping in mind, you know, the caveat that you know the internet can be a sketchy place to do your homework. According to some stuff I found on him today, this was his first published work, and I'm like, wow, did this guy hit the ground running? Because it it's a fantastic yeah. story. Yeah, what a nice debut. Absolutely. I, I couldn't believe that I, I just didn't, I for some reason, I just didn't draw the connection between him and Dark Horse material. Um, he's also the author of a, of a story that uh, not long ago on this show I was raving about. I can't remember the exact name of it. It's a, it's a Jedi Knight story, and it's basically where Yoda and Mace Windu, they pull together what is like the Star Wars equivalent of the, of the Avengers. It's like the Jedi Council. And they go off to, actually, it turns out to be the same planet that's in this story in 86. And they basically just kick a whole bunch of ass. And it's great. And I somehow just never associated you know, the and writer and the, and the planet. And I, I feel like a dope that I didn't. But it, it's fantastic. that it, Maybe maybe Scott and I will start a petition to bring you two back together as a writing <laughs> and drawing team for awesome. Star Wars. Yeah, you, you do that. I'd be happy to work with Randy anytime. That, that was a lot of fun. I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, my my next mission in life is to uh, see if I can get in contact with Randy Stradley. So I will definitely throw that idea his way that uh, you know that you've been on the show now and that you're uh, you're open to uh, a Star Wars reunion. I think that would be fantastic. That would be fun. We'll get the dozens of our listeners to sign up. <laughs> <laughs> that will do the trick and impress him. I'm sure. <laughs> we'll we'll use our leverage. 
I'm just I'm so glad to hear you say that uh, that you know you you have such uh, fond memories of this issue and that you really like it because when you when you started off by asking me I. I for some reason, I thought you were going to say, "Well, you know, I really didn't like this." It's not, I, I was just worried because <laughs> I've always been a big. Oh, fan that would of have been in an interesting it interview <laughs> too. You know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> no, actually, actually, a lot of people have come up to me at conventions and told me that was their favorite uh, story. Also, that's that's a pretty uh, popular story, popular issue. You know, we do another. Uh, uh, we do. We actually do several different formats within. You know, within Two True Freaks and uh, another one of our shows that we do is uh, Comics Monthly Monday, and we did an episode not long ago on uh, on the top five. You know, our top five favorite single issue stories. And for me personally, if there was a, if there was a theme to that, it was generally stories like this that that moved me or you know affected me on some sort of emotional level. I think that's why I like this story because at the end of the day, it's kind of a heartbreaking tale, you know, it, with well, Leia left in tears and all that. Up to this point, nobody had really covered the fact that it had been mentioned in passing that her planet got destroyed. Everybody she knew got. <laughs> got taken yeah. out of existence and that's got to really have an effect on a person you know i mean okay she's had the whole star wars going on to distract her but at some point you're gonna and, uh, i think the notes of this takes place actually before return of the jedi but yes. still yeah but still yeah. The, you know uh i just thought the whole idea of seeing a chunk of her planet hanging from somebody's necklace was quite yeah that was that was quite a well, good idea I think at the time they had not really humanized the stormtroopers very much either. Right. They were just bad guys, and that was maybe the first or certainly one of the first times where they actually showed uh, something from the other side. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and he wasn't like a, a rogue stormtrooper pretending to be a stormtrooper. He was actually, you know, he was, um, you know, torn in his, you know, in what he was, he was going to do. It was, yeah, it was... The, the amount of story you can put into one comic, you know, you have to you have to sort of tell these stories a little tritely, but it's Star Wars, too, so it's trite yeah. in just the right way, you know. Actually, there was one Star Wars comic that, that ended with Lando Calrissian with a teardrop in his eye at the end of it, and it was almost kind of laughing. We, I, we laugh. I think yeah, we were was, laughing at it. It was ridiculous. It was at the end of it. silly, yes. But this, yeah, but this one is actually touching at the end of it, you know? This one actually merits the teardrop at the end of it, so... Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you know, some people are good writers and some aren't. You know, that was just... Randy's a good writer. I mean, but it's not just Randy. I mean, it, it's really... It's the art. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the full package on this one because the art you know, sells the the story just as much as as Randy's script does. Um, this oh, is you. you know honestly one of the best penciled issues uh, of the entire series. The art's just fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I always um, the main thing I like about drawing comics is uh, drawing figures. I just like uh, the fact that you can make these people come alive. You know, if you do it well and um, it's just fun for me to try to make them human. Well, one thing we've noticed is a lot of artists have a really hard time with stormtroopers, keeping the proportions of the the helmets and everything right. And uh, all, yeah, all the stormtroopers in this look and feel like real stormtroopers. You know, they look, <laughs> and that and that doesn't happen an awful lot, especially way back in the Carmine Infantino days. Yeah, there was some well, there was have, some crazy. You have to realize- he didn't have much to work with. Inside there. 
if, if you don't, if you just try to draw the helmet, not realizing someone's head has to fit inside it, you know, it, you can run into problems. I, I think back in the days when he was drawing it too, they were thought of actually more as as kind of robots or or stuff like that, and 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 he did have less to go on as far as. I mean, the, the the funny thing is, nowadays, almost anybody, you could say the word stormtrooper and they picture one in their head and how they move and how they walk and stuff, but it wasn't always, we didn't always have the 501st around to, right. <laughs> to make the stormtrooper walking down the street not be the strangest thing you've ever seen. Have you guys ever seen the British uh, covers to the Star Wars? You know, they were reprinted over in England. Oh, yeah. And they put different covers on them and Carmine drew some of those covers and I inked them over Carmine. Oh, I so, did not know that. See, I've I've been resisting Scott for a long and I have just trying started getting those. Yeah, yeah. I, I finally uh, my resistance wore out and I'm now actively trying to collect those just mainly for the covers. They're they're gorgeous. They're absolutely I beautiful. stumbled on a, a whole bunch of them on eBay for really cheap and and I love them. Plus we've made a British friend who also has stuff like that laying around his house, so that always helps. Scott's gotten a couple annuals that way. Well, those were pretty early on when I was still what I considered um, learning my craft. So they're not my best work, but it was you know fun to work on Star Wars way back then. Are, are they signed? I mean, is are they are they easily yeah, identified? They should be. Okay. They should be. Um, I, I, again, I can't say for sure, but I, I think I remember signing them. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna go dig through mine now to see if I can can find some because they were always they were and they were always full of you know they were padded out inside with lots of sketches and alternate covers and stuff like that. See, I'm, so they're a lot of fun. I find myself uh, horribly uh, upset at the moment with with Dark Horse Comics because they have been doing those nice omnibus reprints of the Marvel material. And I could swear that the original solicits of this was said that they were going to reprint the UK material that up till this point has never been fully reprinted over here. So I was looking forward to finally getting to see all the, you know, the cover gallery, basically, because all the covers I've ever seen are gorgeous, but I've never been able to see them all. If, if that's available somewhere, it's eluded me all these years. I would just like to see the covers because it's primarily the covers that are that, you know, where the variation lies. Yeah, I don't know if they ever uh, made a collection of them. That's, that's really a shame because the ones I have seen are generally very, very good. I, I really enjoy it. Now you've got me really curious to seek these out because uh, you, know, you you are one of my absolute favorite inkers and, and Carmine's early Star Wars stuff is some of my favorite comics art. So I want to see that marriage, you know, that marriage of the two. I, that, I would imagine that's got to be some just fantastic material. Well, like I say, I was, I was learning my craft. So don't, you know, don't go to too much trouble to look for them. But they're, they're not bad. They're okay. I, I really want to see that. I want to go back to something you, you said a moment ago about the the helmet, you know, and, and trying to create, you know, a, a real person under that helmet. One of my favorite moments of this entire issue is where we see Leia, that she's getting under this trooper's skin, that, that her words are starting to have an effect on him. And there's a great moment where you can see him shut down and close himself off and he redons his helmet. And that's when he tells her she's under arrest. 
And I just think that's that's great. Now, was that scripted or is that completely, you know, your your art telling that portion of the story? No, that was in the plot to have him do that. Yeah. I, I just it's beautiful. It's it's really nicely done because you go from an expression on his face of kind of I hear what you're saying to the very next panel he has a much more uh, closed off expression as oh, he's, he's kind of plopping the the bucket back onto his head. It, it's just great. I, I it's just fantastic cuz you can see the thought process in his face with with no dialogue with no word uh, you know thought balloons at all. You can tell exactly what he's thinking. I hear you, but I, I can't hear you. I, I just yeah. think that's awesome. Well, you know, when you get a good script, it, it enables you to draw it uh, better than you could with a, with a weak script. Uh, it really makes a difference when something's well-written as to how the end product comes out because it's, it's hard to do stuff, good stuff, with um, weak writing. If I remember correctly, there's what two more issues after this. There's the the new Dark Lord story, and then what was your your final story? I I'm struggling to remember. Uh, the final one I think was the one with the the woman, the female Darth Vader character. Um, oh, oh, that, that is issue the, number ninety. Okay, so that one is the last one. Okay, so I think that was the last one. So there's one in between this one and that one. Okay, that's the one I'm I'm trying to remember what it is. The the Lando one that you did was there uh, was because parts of that story really felt like maybe someone was going for um, a loose tie-in with the Lando trilogy of novels that had been out right around that same time. Do you do you know if that's true or not? No, I don't. Um, I don't. I don't know anything about that. I enjoyed that a lot. I thought that was a really good story. We got a we got a real kick out of that one. It was it was fun. Yeah, I didn't really. They they kind of gave me a free reign on that, and um, I I just uh, didn't have time. I think I was rushed on. I didn't have time to uh, really look up a lot of reference for the Star Wars world. So I kind of just made up some old uh, kind of earlier Flash Gordon type stuff uh, mm-hmm. rather than Star yeah. Wars style. That, it, it seems like it would always be safe to do that in Star Wars, since that was sort of where Star Wars took it from in the first place. I think that's why Al Williamson worked so well whenever yeah, he did was do Star Wars. It was a different planet, so it could really be any anything you wanted. wanted. Yeah, that's great because that, that's what we had speculated when we reviewed that issue was was that you know were you intentionally going for a uh, for a Flash Gordony feel. Because we yeah. really felt that in the art and thought that was fantastic. I mean, if I was a, if I was a writer or an artist, I'd always want to do space stuff where you end up on different planets just because, you, you, you know, it's not like a TV show where you have to build the sets for them. You get to just create, you know, a whole new world right, every, yeah. every issue. It's the ideal thing because I worked on some other stuff like the Phantom. Uh, I did a series of Phantom comics for a Swedish publisher, Egmont, and there you have to draw these exact helicopters and these exact rifles, and everything has to be so referenced, and uh, it's it's so... Uh, yeah, like s- something taking place in New York City, you know, you have to... Yeah. You, you have to get, get those buildings, buildings right. Everything. Yeah. And on in Star Wars, you can just make all that stuff up. It's so much easier. It's, yeah, it's, nobody's going to go, no, no, the Imperial Council isn't 
<laughs> across the street from everybody knows that. <laughs> and I had the good fortune of, I mean, I wasn't my choice. Uh, when I got on the book, Tom Palmer was already the uh, steady inker on the book, and he kind of insisted if they wanted him to stay on that they find someone that would uh, be willing to pencil breakdowns. And I was happy to draw breakdowns for him because I wanted to see what he would do with my layouts. So I, I was happy uh, to let him take over as much as he wanted to. And so when I would draw stuff like uh, the Millennium Falcon, I would just kind of rough it in and not go crazy over every little detail on it. And then when I got his inks back, you know, he he went out and, and did the exact details and dressed it up really nicely. So I, I had the, 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 you know, I didn't have to worry about all those little details when mm -hmm. I was doing all that stuff. I was just and, worrying about... And he'd been drawing them over and over again, so he knew where they all were almost probably by memory by that. Well, yeah. one thing that's been running through a lot of these issues, or a lot of our episodes lately when we've been talking about these issues, is is how Tom Palmer has sort of been the visual glue that's been keeping Star Wars together through all these artist changes and stuff because his inks keep a, yeah, a sort of consistency going through the through it all. Exactly, and that's what they wanted. So that's they, you know, hoped he would stay around and, and uh, tried to keep him happy just for that reason. We've been trying to another one of our movements that we've been trying to start is is a is get Snapple or somebody to have a Tom Palmer half lemonade, half iced tea drink. Half vodka. <laughs> half vodka to, to compete with the Arnold Palmer. Yeah, because some, some of our earlier episodes, I, I used to always joke that I was drinking a Tom Palmer, which uh, was basically an Arnold Palmer with a little shot of vodka in it. <laughs> windmill for us to tilt at. So you, you came to this one... Off of uh, off of New Mutants, which Chris Chris and I loved, by the way. We I was just was about to say I can't let this go by without at least saying that like New Mutants was also another the when the graphic novel came out that that was when Marvel first started doing what was it the first graphic novel was like Death of Captain Marvel wasn't yeah, it Yeah it was and, yeah. And New Mutants was like number two or three number five so the, or four, five, four, four or five four or five yeah it was but it was in the New first Mutants wave of four. a four. Yeah, it was number four, and if they were just starting them up, and they were kind of spur of the moment, and they decided, um, hey, th this is a good thing to do. We need to start doing more of these, because Death of Captain Marvel did so well. And the problem was they didn't have any material. And so they were scrounging around saying, what can we use uh, to get out a graphic novel right away? And we just coincidentally happened to be coming up with the New Mutants at that time, and I had already started drawing it just as a regular comic. And uh, Wheezy called me and said, hey, what do you think about making this into a graphic novel? And so I said, well, sure. But then the only problem was with the comic, we were three months ahead of schedule. Mm -hmm. I was going to have all the time on the wor in the world to lavish it up and, and do my absolute best work. And then when they put it in the, as a graphic novel, the novels were on a different schedule. And instead of being three months ahead, we were suddenly a month behind. So I had to scramble and basically knock it out. Well, it didn't look like it was yeah, it knocked doesn't, out. Yeah, it doesn't look rushed at all. It's a, that's beautiful. Well, I remember, I remember the, the up, up till that point, all the graphic novels were sort of like this event that it was like this, you know, the death of Captain Marvel, you know, or, 
or they were this and this was a sort of event in the way they were going to launch the new mutants with it and yeah. i thought that worked really well i i remember getting it and being like ah, i'm I was kind of questionable about like ah, another X-Men title. We'll see what this is. And I got sucked right into yep. it and um, was like, this is just a really nifty idea for um, introducing, you know, this, this new group of characters. And it's what got me reading the, the comics when they came out. And then I was, you know, chomping at the bit for the comics to come out. And, it was really a nice introduction for us to to get the graphic novel to introduce the series. It was it was a nice timing. And it had and since you were the artist on both of them, it had the same look. But the the comics or the the graphic novel, it was probably did you paint a lot of that or no? That was no, I penciled and inked it, but that was Glennis Ween's coloring on that. It just had a very painterly look to it. It just had a very um, more refi- refined. Look, maybe it was the graphic novel format at the time too, you know. And and another thing, our younger listeners, don't, you know, they were that was a brand new format, you know. Yeah, that was a brand new idea. And uh, except, you know, you'd get comics that size, but they'd be a collection or you know something like that. And the idea of, you know, this sort of prestige format with uh, more adult stories and stuff, it was the beginning of that, you know. And I guess it sort of has been replaced now by what trade paperbacks really sort of are filling the same yeah world I, don't know if you, I don't know if you've seen them but they've been published uh, somewhere i think i did actually some nudity in the first pages of the graphic novel because uh they were more adult um i did a page where rain is first discovered uh <laughs> by mora and uh, she's lying down on the ground and she's transforming and from a wolf she, right yeah yeah so she, she so she was kind of furry naked but she was naked and then we ended up redrawing it uh in the printed published version hmm. i i can actually picture that page in my head right now and and yeah. and and, and, uh, and basically it just sort of tip, tipped her away a little more so yeah i think she i covered was, up her her breast with her arm or something mm-hmm which learn. was funny because you thought that you would think they might want to toss a little, <laughs> toss yeah, a little maybe it was because they were I, younger or that's that's the thought when I did it, and then whoever maybe Stan saw it and and didn't want to go there, I don't know, but they had me change it hmm they weren't ready to to take that leap yet, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Do you remember what your uh, what your next project was uh, coming off of Star Wars? Um, is that when I went into inking Conan the Barbarian? I believe. Oh, okay. I I, on, I was trying to remember the timeline and I couldn't remember. Yeah, I think after Star Wars, I worked on Conan, and then from Conan, I went to the Hulk. Over Dale Keown, um, so I started doing a lot more inking because um, I don't think there was a penciling series open at the time, and I always wanted to. I was a big Conan fan, so I jumped on Conan, and of course John Buscema. I loved John Buscema's work, so I was really anxious to ink John Buscema. So that's I think that's why I jumped on Conan, and then Dale Keown came along, and I just loved his pencils. Um, so when they offered that to me, I took that too. 
Now, that was uh, late 80s by that point, right, with Dale Keown? Mid to late 80s? Must have been. I'm trying to think what was between there then, Conan and the Hulk. Because I'm thinking otherwise that's quite a, that's quite a stretch on, uh, on Conan. Well, I'm wondering if Conan was even before the New Mutants. Let me think about this. I don't know. It's too long ago. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder how much pressure it would be as an inker, you know, when if you get, you know, when you finally get a chance to ink somebody that you know you've admired and and seen their, and all of a sudden you have their artwork in front of you and you have to go over. Is that a little nerve wracking? I would think it would be. You you would think, but when I was young, you know, you're real cocky when you're young. And uh-huh. I guess, ah, I, no problem, I can do this. <laughs> That's and probably the really... best attitude to have to do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't. I mean, it's probably just as well that I wasn't intimidated because then it would have would not have come out well. So I just took it and ran with it. You know, he was doing breakdowns, so I could pretty much do whatever I wanted with him because his breakdowns are the loosest breakdowns you'll ever see. You know, they're like almost like connect the dots. There's really not much drawing there. I mean, what's there is beautiful, and, and it's really all you need, but um, it's pretty sparse. So even if I'd wanted to, I couldn't have stayed very close to what he was giving me because of, they were just loose breakdowns. That whole process is always... Like, as, as a kid, when I was reading that stuff at first, you know, I never thought of any of the process i always figure you know as a kid you always just figure somebody sits down and <laughs> starts sectioning off the page into squares and and <laughs> and you know just sort of goes along and does it and uh i'm 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 gonna have to search out some uh some scripts because i've always wondered what a script for uh, my background's in film so i know it like film script form is there a specific format that that you get, like, you know, like a page-by-page, frame-by-frame breakdown, or is it different from every writer? It's different from every writer. Wow. And surely you've heard the stories of the old days with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, where Stan would basically just say, have the FF fight Dr. Doom in this issue. <laughs> and that was his plot. <laughs> so Jack Kirby would go and pretty much write the whole, not script it, but write how everything would evolve during that issue, and then Stan would get that and, and write all the dialogue. <laughs> and put his, some word balloons on through. it. <laughs> yeah, he would just say, have them fight for 12 pages or whatever, you know. <laughs> it no, worked. Some, like Chris Claremont <laughs> would give you plots that were like novels. They were, they were just pages and pages and pages, far more than you could ever get into 22 pages. And you just had to cut stuff out because there wasn't room for it all. And he didn't mind. He, he said he'd rather give you too much than too little. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of had to edit his scripts down, uh, his plots. Now, not his finished scripts. His plots were like that. But then other people are, you know, much sparser. So it just really it depends on the writer. <laughs> I've always wondered about that because that, that, that makes it sound way much more exciting to me. Well, yeah, the whole idea is to have the artist more involved in the storytelling is why they worked in the what was called the Marvel style, just giving them a plot rather than a finished script. In the old days, you know, DC Comics would work from a finished script, and so the Marvel style was to uh, just have the writer write a plot, just the basic story, and let the artist contribute so much more to the 
visual storytelling because honestly uh, artists usually have a better visual sense than writers mm-hmm. most writers are thinking about text and and how they want to describe something and they don't really they often write things that don't aren't that visually interesting you know so you need an artist really to to be able to uh, know what's going to look good as opposed to just um, tell a good story I, I I've always I've seemed to notice that there hasn't been a lot of crossover with like people who who are writer artists you know or who'll do art for a little while and then write a little while there's people who do that or who'll write and do their uh, one of the comics we're going to talk about later in the show after this interview is uh, the first Marvel Indiana Jones that John Byrne did and wrote and, and drew. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I, I wonder if that's uh, just two different mindsets. I would think, I, I, I sort of would picture most of the artists after a while just being like, you know what, screw it, I'm going to become a writer too <laughs> because <laughs> that way I could... That that way I could get control over the whole. Yeah, that happened a lot yeah. in the '80s, though, but with mixed and results. That di- yeah, right, and led to disaster in some cases. Yeah, yeah, because not everybody has the skills in in all those areas. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of the writers in the early days uh, were hoping to be artists and just didn't have the artistic chops to to do it professionally, and so they turned to writing. And a lot of the artists wanted to write, but you know, they just weren't good at writing. Yeah. So they ended up doing more artwork. So, it, you know, it's not that common where someone's good at both. I've just never really been that interested in, in writing. Uh, I just always was consumed with the artwork. And I've written a couple things, but um, I'm so much more interested in, in drawing than mm-hmm. I am in writing. The one comic story that I wrote uh, was a Red Sonia script. And I posted a couple pages of it on Facebook recently. Uh, it was a 10-page story that I wrote. Um, but just coincidentally, I, I wrote it right at the time that they were redesigning the character after uh, Frank Thorne left the series. And they gave her a different costume and everything. And um, so they bought it from me, but they never published it. Red oh. Sonia was a, a, a favorite of teenage boys. Yes. <laughs> favorite yeah. comic of teenage boys. <laughs> yeah. I, it reminds me a lot of film. They're, the comics and film are both visual mediums, and and they both seem to like it. You know, unless you're dealing with like an auteur type person, they seem to work best and most efficiently as a collaborative medium. You know, with with where you take the the job and spread it out amongst a whole bunch of different people. It seems to where especially really- since. It's a month by really month thing. Depends. Yeah, I think it really just depends on the person because the great thing about comics is that it's like making a movie all by yourself or just with a couple people. Mm-hmm. Whereas a movie has this entire crew of fifty people, and with a comic, yeah, you generally just, just have one or two or three people involved. So um, it's, I mean, it's possible, and several people have done it, um, but you know. Most of us have one thing we're better at than other things. Like, I I was pretty skilled at inking. Uh, just inking came easily to me, so I did more inking in my career than anything else. Um, you know, and some people are just better at writing. Some are better. Uh, there's several pencilers that are just 
really good pencilers, but they weren't that good at inking themselves. Uh, and they didn't know how to write, you know, we just had different skills. Yeah. I always like how that, when it works out that way, you end up getting unexpected, you know, results that none of the participants even expected because of the, (laughs) well, that's the great thing about having a pencil and inker team where you get these, a new combination of, of art that neither artist would do on their own, but together it, it looks great. So it's always fun to ink another artist, uh, and, and come up with a different look. Well, that's one of the things I've learned in doing the show with Scott is now I'm starting to get a good eye for spotting different inkers. And it's like why, it's like spotting a cinematographer in a movie going, ah, I know who, you know, did this by this shot. So it's like, right. Uh, you know, yeah. now I can go, oh, look, it's it's Klaus Jansen. Because <laughs> yeah, we did that in the in the issue that you were uh, alluding to a little while ago, uh, Star Wars. I think it was number 82. Because I think the the inker on that issue is credited simply as uh, I think it's many hands or M hands. Yeah, I don't think I I don't think I inked that whole issue. You're right. I think I just inked a few pages. Right. Out. Yeah, and we were going through and trying to figure out because it, we couldn't find credits anywhere online or in any resource telling who was who as far as the inker. So we were going through the issue with a fine tooth comb. And going, okay, this is clearly this person. This is clearly this person. And we, I think we got like four out of five or something like that. There was one there was inker some we mysteries. just, yeah, we couldn't pin down. But yours is a very distinctive style. And I remember seeing that and going, is that? No, that's, oh, wait, yeah, he comes on in a couple. That's got to be him a couple issues early. So I, I'm, I'm glad to have that confirmation on that. <laughs> in the old days, you used to be able to tell the inkers much easier. Today, the pencils are so tight. It's it's a challenge because uh, so many comics now the inker is interchangeable because the pencils are just super tight. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's to the detriment of of artwork these days. I think a lot. I, I think it gives it almost a uh, just sort of a processed look to it. You know, there's just, it's it makes it look all the same. You know, there's a yeah. lot of that that hyper detailed beautifully rendered art that i think i probably would have gone crazy for what like and i did go crazy for when i first saw it like in the 80s and now it looks like there's almost you know uh, a process where they can teach people to do that and all of a sudden you sort of look like todd mcfarlane or something and yeah it it, it loses some of the the personality of of Mm -hmm. of the of the inkers yeah, no. I think it's a shame. Back in the 70s, particularly, there used to be so many different styles. Everything, every comic looked mm-hmm. totally different. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, nine out of ten comics, you, you know, you think might, that could be the same artist. You just, they're so similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are still some standout people that are very individual, but there's just so many that look the same. Anything you're working on uh, presently that you wanted to uh, to plug or mention? I just did a cover, uh, Spider-Man cover, uh, inking over Tom Rainey, speaking of tight pencils. <laughs> <laughs> they were super, super tight, um, so not a lot of me in it. Uh, but then I also inked a cover, a Spider-Man cover over Larry Stroman uh, with Big Wheel on it. Uh, I don't know if you know who Big Wheel is. He's a bad guy from 
I think was Amazing Spider-Man 183 that I yes. used 30 years ago. <laughs> yes, yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> and Ross Andrew did the pencils on the inside, and I inked the inside of that one. Um, so they had me ink the cover over Larry on this, and Larry's pencils are fairly loose. So to- two totally different inking experiences there. Is, uh, is Andrew I, still around? No, he died a few years ago. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That's a sh- he's, He was a great, great artist. Yeah, you know, when I first got into comics in the 70s, he was actually working at the Marvel offices. He had a desk upstairs. Um, I used to sit right next to Mike Esposito. I used to work in production. <sighs> and Mike Esposito would ink his pages while I was doing the production work. And he took me upstairs to meet Ross Andrew one day. And Ross would pin his pages to a vertical drawing board. He's the only artist I've ever seen uh, work that way. He totally vertical. When like he 90 degrees straight up? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. So his original art has all these little holes all around the edges because he pinned his pages to that vertical drawing board. Wow. Like, a, like drawn on a chalkboard. I knew a guy who was a painter like that. He would paint stuff on on walls, and then he would get a sawzall and cut it out of the wall when he was done. But he was a, you know, eighty year old weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, there's a lot of painters that paint vertically, but mm-hmm. um, most comic artists, you know, like to do it forty five degrees or whatever. Yeah, I would think that'd be very uncomfortable to. That's to what draw I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a reason you do <laughs> that. They've they do it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It was it was strange, but he was a nice guy, kind of a quirky guy. You know, didn't have a lot to say, um, but you know, wonderful artist. I don't know uh, how you feel about uh, uh, current goings on at uh, at DC, but I'm just curious if uh, if we'll see any Superman, uh, you know, any return to Superman for you anytime soon. Well, I'd like to, and I was just about to say, I just inked uh, half of an issue, uh, Action Comics number eight. Ah. Um, over Rags Morales. It'll be out in a month or so. I, I like his artist yeah. as well. He's a, he's a really, really talented artist. Yes, he is. I'd like to do some more work on Superman, but I don't have anything planned right now. I'm kind of semi-retired. I don't really go out looking for work in comics. So if they call me, I'll do something. Um, so they called me for those couple covers and to ink that issue over rags. But um, I do a lot of, uh, I teach part-time, and I do a lot of private commissions for the fans and um, school visits. I, I do school visits. Um, I do conventions. So I keep pretty busy, and really comics uh, don't, they're, pay scale has actually gone down, so they pay less than they did 10 oh, years geez. ago. Mm. Yeah, so it's a lot of work and uh, not as much money as it used to be, so I'm just as happy to do other stuff as to work in comics, even though I, you know, I still enjoy it, and like I say, I would still do it if it, if it came along, but um, it's not at the top of my list of stuff I want to do. Now I know you're at a at a con um, in Kentucky. Do you ever get uh, to uh, say like MegaCon? We just had MegaCon here a few weeks ago in uh, in Orlando. Do you ever get down for that? I was there. I'm there every year. You were at MegaCon? Yes, I was. Were you on? I didn't see your name on the guest list. 
I was there for some strange reason. They always shoved me over in the independent section. Oh, uh, see, I never, I never even in the main area. Oh, I never even see, went I over there. I would have been over there. <laughs> that's, that's well, I, oh, now I feel so bad because yeah, I, I thought I I thought I had seen everybody that was there, but yeah, I, I don't usually go to that area because you know, not to sound snobbish, but it's it's usually a lot of the up and comers and stuff like that, so I don't really get over in that yeah. area. Oh, now yeah, I feel I so badly. <laughs> they try to mix us up a little bit. John Beatty was over there, and Alex Saviak was over there, and a couple other people. I think Ron Garney was over there. No way. Yeah. It's it's oh, funny. We were, we were talking about, uh, or well, actually one of our listeners was talking about how they liked, because Scott went to Megacon fully prepared. We actually recorded a show while he was getting all his comics together and figuring out who was there and who he was going to see and stuff. And we, um, and our friend Michael Bailey is has a, just a steel trap memory for people's names and faces and how to pronounce their names. So, you know, we were go you know, we were making sure that we pronounce the names of everybody, every, um, artist correctly, or, uh, it was Scott pronouncing them correctly. Cause he was the one talking about them, but you know, like, uh, Bill St. Kevitz and, uh, yeah. and that, that just reminded me, Scott and I were discussing whether, we would bring it up in the show, but Scott <laughs> and I, we, we owe you an apology because when we were kids in Carthage, New York, where we didn't know anything about how to pronounce any any names, we, we always referred to you as Bob McLeod. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> that's, that's good to know because, like, uh, you know, I've, I just got off a stint of working at an Irish bar for five years and, like, every... <laughs> Just whacking myself in the head, going, "Oh my God, <laughs> how did I not see that?" It's, yes, <laughs> it's it, it's very embarrassing, but yes, it is true. I'm I'm not proud of it, but you know, we well, we were a couple of, of a- dumbass kids in a in a small little hole in the wall town in upstate New York, and you know, if if someone had had told me back then that, hey, you know, one day you're going to talk to the artist of this issue, I'd have told them they were out of their minds. So. Well, the, and then I also worked at a Mexican joint for ten years with you know people speaking Spanish, and then I then then I was whacking myself on the head, going, "Do you mean all those years I was saying tortilla and <laughs> nobody correct? There was nobody there to correct me." well names are tough you know there's a lot of strange names in the business and elsewhere too so i don't i don't make a big deal out of it somebody mispronounces my name (laughs) you know bill sinkevich when i when i first met him i was either the first person or the second to ink him at marvel uh when he introduced himself that must have been fun oh yeah oh i was i was thrilled but he called himself Bill Sinkowitz. Uh, See, met I thought that because that's how Chris that's and I how pronounced we, it for years. We pronounced it that way because we and we just assumed else. we had it wrong. Yeah, we had everybody else wrong. Yeah. No, he he himself uh, called himself Bill Sinkowitz, and then I guess I, I'm not sure why, but he he decided no, his name was Bill Sinkovich. That's funny. Cause see, I I'm was struggling to remember, but it seems that I had either met him or met someone who knew him. Maybe Roger Stern. I forget when I was a kid at, at some upstate New York comic con or, you know, comic convention. And, uh, 
and that's the pronunciation I've had stuck in my head for years and years. And then I just met him at this, you know, this just past uh, uh, Megacon, and he pronounced it Sinkevich. So, yeah, yeah, that's oh, that's so strange. I'm not sure about the story there. I, I don't know <laughs> what the story is, but um, definitely was changed. Now, is he the one that used to go around to some of the the Marvel publicity events dressed as Spider-Man, and nobody knew it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Never heard that. There, there was. He's built like he could do it, but I, I don't know. I, I know there's somebody from his, um, I don't know what you would call it, you know, pure group or, or whatever, you know, from from his time at Marvel, let's say, that I've heard that story before, and I remember getting a, a an autograph from a Spider-Man at some mall appearance somewhere in New York, and I've all these years I've wondered if it might have <laughs> been him, and I should have asked him that at MegaCon, but I did, I just, I just now thought of that actually. I had uh, forgotten about that until just now. I would, I, would, I would say be, odds are now no. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would be very surprised because it doesn't. It doesn't fit his personality as as I know him. But I guess it's possible. <laughs> Unless he was doing some sort of Andy Kaufman thing, where you know, I'm going to dress as Spider Man during the day and not tell anybody. He was always more reserved. I I can't really picture him doing that, but I guess it's possible. <laughs> I had forgotten that you had inked him. Um, was that on uh, X-Men? What, when I inked Bill? Yeah. It was on the black, the Hulk magazine, the black and white uh, Hulk magazine that then became a full-color right. magazine. Right. I used to and love that. Yeah. On the backup features of the Hulk magazine, they had Moon Knight, and he penciled some Moon Knight uh, stories that I inked. That's right. <coughs> I remember those. Yeah. And and then there was a special called Star Lord uh, that he inked that he penciled mm-hmm. and I inked. Yep, I remember that too. Oh wow, <laughs> that's a trip. Because I yeah, that was some gorgeous. I'm writing all this stuff down because yeah, I'm exactly. going to eBay and searching it out, searching it back out because I forgot that I was even reading that stuff, and all of a sudden it's just like, oh yes, that was very good. <laughs> Yeah, he was really into his Neil Adams phase at the time, really trying to draw like Neil, and we were all blown away at, at how well he was pulling it off, and he was a lot of fun to ink. I cannot believe you were at Megacon, and I completely missed that. Oh, <laughs> I kicked myself. Well, I'll be back again next year. I go every year, because my mother lives down in Tampa, so I go to the show and visit her at the same time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you, uh, do you ever get over to Disney? No, never have. Really, I mean, never have. Disney World. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've been to Disney World because I, I was living down there when it first opened, and I went to Epcot, you know, before they even finished it, and uh, Disney World, and you know, a, a couple times, and I took my kids there, you know, when they were little. Well, if you ever need a tour guide for Disney, Scott's the go-to guy for that. <laughs> let me tell you. Oh yeah. <laughs> if I go back, I'm going to Harry Potter World. <laughs> Oh, you cut me to the quick. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go to Harry Potter World, too. (laughs) Well, I I definitely look forward to to meeting you and uh, and shaking your hand at uh, at Megacon and uh, and hopefully getting this issue signed because it it really, really is uh, a fantastic issue. Chris and I have sworn that when we we finish the run, which... uh, 
is actually sadly not, not too not long. too far in the future now we've only got uh what 21 issues left at this point before we finish the series but uh we will be doing a, a massive uh, retrospective, I'm sure, and one of the big questions that's going to come up are, you know, what, what are the, like the top, say, top three, top five issues? And uh, I'm going to be curious to see what that number one is, because this is definitely a, a high contender. This is a, just a fantastic issue, because there's, there's other you know, stories that I really enjoy, and there's other uh, illustrated issues that I enjoy. But it, there's not a whole lot of issues, sadly. As great as this run was of, of Star Wars, there's just not a whole lot of issues that are, are a, a perfect synthesis of writing and art. And this is one of those issues. You know, this this really is, I mean, it, it's a hell of a good story, and the art is just gorgeous in it. I really, really enjoy the issue. Well, thank, thank you very much. It, it was a nice job to work on, and um, I'm glad it uh, struck a chord with uh, so many people. Maybe I'll see you next year at Megacon. Absolutely. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you so much yes. for joining us. Okay, no problem. Have a good night. You too. Take care. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, kids. Comics! Hey, Michael. Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium? Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. Talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing. Badly. Yes. Well, badly is purely subjective. But how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Ages comics. Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. Clouds of war gather ominously over Europe. The Great Depression grips the world. But one globe-trotting archaeologist thirst for adventure and discovery remains undaunted by his times. Stan Lee presents... The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Welcome back to Star Wars Monthly Monday number 40. This is the Indiana Jones segment of the show. We're going to be looking at the further adventures of Indiana Jones number one. And uh, joining us for this, you know, I told you guys at the beginning of the show that this was a, a special guest filled episode. And damn it, I wasn't lying for a change. We have all the way from the UK, Mr. Andrew Leyland. Hello, I thought you said special guest. <laughs> yeah, I was it's... waiting for the special. <laughs> I'm very special. <laughs> there you go, it's special I like, I like being special. <laughs> this... Hey man, what a... 
Yeah, the Chris. Whatever version of special you <laughs> run with it, man. <laughs> I have now, ice cream on my face. <laughs> now, before we get into this, and uh, and Chris is going to do the the synopsis on this one. This is your fault. I want you to know. Yeah, he's the instigator. Yeah, he really is because uh, Andy, in, in more ways than one, he has instigated a whole lot of stuff because, you know, by by sending me, which was awesome, he sent me a nice stack of Star Wars Weekly. You know, this this is the um, Marvel UK imprint for uh, for Marvel Star Wars comics. I'd never owned any before, and I think I was bemoaning that fact in, in one of our episodes a while back, and, uh, and Andrew took it upon himself to uh, send me some issues. Awesome, totally awesome, but now he's got me started. Now I'm going to have to collect them all. So between him and what, uh, what Bob McLeod was just saying about... Uh, I know. Yeah, and now I've, now I've, I've got to, you know, that's it. i I got to be the first kid on my block to collect them all now. Well, that, but also... So in this one issue, and it's a gorgeous, gorgeous cover on this star. It's the weekly uh, Star Wars Weekly, number one sixty-seven. Now it's a Star Wars book, but who's on the cover? Indiana Jones, and it's awesome. It's a beautiful, beautiful painted issue or painted cover rather of Indy, and it's it's got some um, sort of some images and iconography from the issue that we're about to, you know, the storyline that we're about to delve into here. So it's just so weird to see, you know, Star, you know, the big Star Wars logo, but then it's Indy standing underneath it. It's just very bizarre. It's got R2 on the cover. So anyway, behind, you know, in the, in the backup feature for this magazine, behind the Star Wars story that's uh, printed in here is printed or reprinted, depending on your, your point of view, I guess, the first several pages of the further adventures of Indiana Jones. So it's in the larger uk printed style more like magazine size and it's in stark black and white and it's just beautiful i I mean i I know i i covered this when i first got it and and raved about it but it was looking at this combined with our recent coverage of uh raiders of the lost ark you know that we did for commentary monthly monday that really just reignited my passion for this and was like, how, how have I been in podcasting now over three years and I've never done an episode talking about this comic. So it's all Andrew's fault that uh, now we've got to go and dive into the yeah. further adventures of Indiana Jones. Cause man, uh, I, I had forgotten how incredibly awesome this, uh, this yes. story is. It's beautiful. I'll shut up now. Go ahead with your synopsis. <laughs> All right, our story begins with Dr. Jones extending some sketchy quote-unquote extra credit involving a cigarette and his whip to a skinny young lady. He's interrupted by an aggravated Marcus who tells him that his uh, former student, Charlie Dunn, is there uh, to visit him. So Jones finds out that Dunn claims to have found the life-size gold statues, the icons of Ikemenen. <laughs> Ikemenen. Nagamenon. Along, and he's found them along with his sister. Unfortunately, he doesn't really get to finish what he's talking about because he's positioned himself conveniently in front of a window and uh, catches a dagger in the back. So... Of course, Jones finds a, a map in the dead man's pack, and 
he's off to Liber- Liberia to meet up with uh, Dunn's sister, Edith, who is also a former student of his. So when he arrives there, uh, Jones is kind of wondering how the flaky Edith has survived so long in such a sort of hostile territory. And uh, when they're attacked in Edith's room by turban thugs who uh, carry off Edith, then of course uh, Jones gives chase and is lured uh, to the vaults of Solomon Black, an obese crime lord who wants Jones to find the icons for him. Jones refuses, but Black insists by putting a knife to Edith's throat, so they load up a ship and they're heading off to the secret island where the icons are supposedly hidden. Uh, They find the island, uh, but they see from the ship that it's basically a, a, a graveyard for of other former ships that have tried to land there. So uh, Indy and Edith and uh, two of Solomon Black's henchmen go ashore in, uh, in a little dinghy. <laughs> I said little dinghy. So one, one henchman is instantly dispatched by booby traps, and the other one basically just sends Edith and Indy off to fetch the icons he ain't getting out of the boat so indeed they do find the temple and they find out that it does indeed house the golden figures and uh when indy i don't know how he decides that he's gonna carry a solid gold life-size icon back to the ship but he decides to to pull one of them down to, to bring back to solomon black and when he does it breaks open and he realizes it's hollow and has a uh a human leg bone fallen out of it. So he's he's knocked out cold and uh, he awakens to find himself and Edith uh, suspended by a chain over a huge pit of molten gold and surrounded by gibbering old native priests. Not really a good sign. And that is the end of issue one. Surprisingly enough, ending on a cliffhanger or a chain hanger. Now, did you mention that they were being lowered into a pit of molten gold? Molten gold, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think I used the <laughs> right. words molten gold, okay. yes. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I never listen when you're speaking. So um, I might have said hot molten gold, too, oh, okay. just, to be, just to be extra redundant, redundant. <laughs> but Yes, let me check my notes here. Suspended by a chain over a pit of molten gold. I apologize. I mean, it's not until the editing process where I have to actually pay attention to what you're saying. And then that's when I... (laughs) Then that's when you're smacking your forehead going, I didn't hear this bullshit. (laughs) First time. It's... Is he chewing on a mouthful of oatmeal? And what's going on? I, ah, that's what I get for surfing porn and podcasting at the same time. It's, yeah, it's a problem, Scott. It's a problem when it starts <laughs> interfering with your podcasting. Hear that, listeners? I, uh, all the listeners are like looking at their porn right now and listen to us going, "What? Oh shit! I don't listen to him either." <laughs> I just need voices in the back of my head when I watch my porn. <laughs> I think they play. I think they play our podcast. So when like their their wives walk in, they don't hear like moans and groans. They hear Scott and I going, and then Star Wars, Star Wars, and Star Trek, and, and then wives just shake their heads and walk out the room. They don't even look in. <laughs> you know the the problem with being on your show. I end up listening to you and forget that I'm actually here. Yeah, you and everybody else that gets <laughs> yeah, on this show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're going fast forward, fast forward, come on. 
See, the other problem with you guys that guests on the show and do that is that you can't keep checking your watch to see how much longer you got to listen to this bullshit before and, and a good podcast uh, comes on. And he's trying to skip ahead. Why isn't it skipping ahead to the good parts? <laughs> this is the good part. <laughs> I know. That's sad, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear me. This is as good as it gets. So uh, where do we want to start? Who wants to go first? Uh, what, a, what, do we, what do we think of the further adventures of Indiana Jones number one? It's very fast-paced, isn't it? Yes, mm. it is. I really liked it. I'm just sending you John Byrne's house ad for this, which Ooh, is different I gotta, to the one you posted last week. You may have I've, seen it before. No, I've got I've to see this. I, I don't know that I have. Did you buy this first run when it came out? I had the British ones, obviously. I didn't have the American ones. Uh, I got the American ones later, and they were ooh, and they were promptly sold at some point where I got rid of a bunch of comics. So I just picked these up recently in the 50p bins. But it was um, a back. It had its own book after that Star Wars Weekly monthly thing that you talked about. Star Wars became Return of the Jedi Weekly to tie in with Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi because we we always hoard the names of our comics out to tie in with whatever popular TV show or film was out at the time. Spider Man comics became Spider Man and his Amazing Friends for a bit, so we did that quite a lot. And Indy got his own monthly comic, and that's where I read most of these. Now I could be wrong, but I don't think I've ever seen this image that you sent me. I don't think I've ever seen this before. This oh, is. Not. Awesome. What what is this from? This is the house ad for issue two that was in um, the back of Marvel Comics at the time. But note, uh, on the right-hand side, they've miscolored Indy's hat yeah. and jacket. Yeah, they've got a white hat that sort of looks like Belloc's hat. And then that's, what is that, a green? Looks like mm, a green like jacket. like a green leather jacket. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a, there is something hanging off that chair that's in the center bottom that could possibly be his leather jacket, I think, but I, 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 I'm not really, I can't tell if that's a jacket or a shirt or a towel or what that is hanging there, but it, I guess it could be. But this is, wow, that's really nice. I like it's, the sandwich with one bite taken out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And the whiskey bottle. I'm telling you, Burn and Austin should always be paired up together. Always I just love the combination of yeah. of the two of them. Always, well, yeah. What did you think? The cover's only Terry Austin to this, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it it's very John Byrne looking. It's very mm. in the style of John Byrne, especially when you look at um, what's her name, Edith, in the background with her with her glasses and stuff. It, you know, and I'm sure he was drawing off the the characters of John Byrne. I wondered why John Byrne didn't do the the cover of this, but this is a great cover, nonetheless. It's beautiful. Yeah, well, Byrne doesn't have fond memories of this, does he? Oh, is that right? Yeah, um, he said in an interview the only reason the reason he only did two issues. Um, initially, Jim Shooter wasn't interested in pursuing an Indiana Jones book because he thought it would have no sales appeal. And Jim Salicrup apparently went to him and said, look, more people have probably heard of Indiana Jones than of any Marvel character. So they got the license to do the comic. And then what happened was Jim Shooter was apparently in his no two-issue stories phase. It all had to be done in one issue, so that kind of killed the cliffhanger endings. So I don't know how they got away with this cliffhanger. I don't know what happened with that. But then he said the liaison at Lucasfilm was a nightmare. 
she would approve stuff and then approve the uh, approve the plot, approve the uh, approve the script, and then go back and ask for the plot to be changed. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And then the way it was working, they were sending her plots and plots and plots months in advance, and she liked the third issue plot more than she liked the first issue plot, and asked for the first issue to become the third issue to become the first issue. At which point, Byrne apparently just threw his arms up and said, "Right, I've had enough of this." Yeah, I, I can away. understand that. That's apparently, it's maddening. He said it, it got worse when they did the adaptation of Temple of Doom. Each step was approved, and just as the book went to the printer, she called up and asked for a different penciler. Jeez. So that's why he only did two issues. Yeah, you can't blame a guy for that. It is a shame, though. It, it is a shame that the that we only got just the two out of him because uh, they're gorgeous. Yeah, they're gorgeous, and uh, I mean, I, I I don't, I you know, I. Don't think any argument could be made that these are not the two best issues of the of the entire series. So, well, another uh, another thing it's got going for it, which I've really noticed in recent years, is John Byrne has a good feel for movie franchises or franchises in general because his Star Trek stuff that he's written, he really gets the feel mm-hmm. of what he's writing. And this, like this comic, is broken up into four four short chapters so much shit happens in them you know it's just like an indiana jones movie it's just boom off into the story you know no messing around just enough little coloring on the side to make it fun but you know i mean having a you know how many times do you see a comic you know cut into four portions like that and have it sort of seem like it flows naturally and it and it does completely he really understands and was this was before Temple of Doom, right? Oh yes, yeah. yeah. And, well before. And so he just had Raiders to to work for, work on as far as you know, like Indy's character and and all that. And he nails it. I mean, dead center nails it. Nails the feel of it while not trying to like make another indie movie. He's he's got the feel of it in a, in comic book form. So it's it's definitely written as a comic. But it expresses the 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 feel of of Indiana Jones, you know, mm-hmm. and it even uses a few things from the movie, sort of. And uh, the temple at the end of it looks like the temple at the end of Crystal, Crystal Skull. Crystal Skull, yeah, <laughs> I thought that too. Yeah, and uh, and plus the artwork is is perfect. It 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 looks right for it. It's that hyper detailed John Byrne, mm-hmm. really paying attention to every. Well, there's a lot of shots where there's no background at all. Right. You know, where it'll just be sort of characters tangling, but where where you're standing still for a second, there's just so much every little pebble, every little fleck of dirt and crevice and it's it's just a feast for the eyes and I, I want to encourage anybody who may be listening to this episode that if your only exposure to John Byrne has been stuff that's that's late in his career, you know, fairly recent stuff like say Lab Rats or you know Blood of the Demon or his run on Doom Patrol or something or, or you know Spider Man Chapter One, and you don't think much of John Byrne, seek these issues out, and mm-hmm. it, it's going to really open your eyes as to why 
You'll see why people are excited. Yeah, because it's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, you look at the detail on chapter two. Yes. Interested parties, the the second panel. Yes. Every barnacle. Yep. It's mm-hmm. just, I mean, yeah, like the, the the grime at the bottom of the pier there, and the ropes tied up, and the the just the detail on the boat that looks like a lived-in boat. It's not shiny and new. It's mm-hmm. it's seen a lot of action. Oh yeah, and that just that just carries on. I mean, the following two pages, um, the scene where Indy uses his bullwhip to swing down from the window, yeah, and crashes into the fruit cart. Is all is in one panel. Fancy. Yep. It's fantastic, isn't it? And the next, the subsequent two pages from that, there's no <laughs> skimping anywhere on these six or seven pages that follow. And the action sequence there, it flows wonderfully. You can hear the, you can hear the, the swelling John Williams score in the background. It's, it's, yeah. Considering he only had Raiders to work from, he's done an excellent job of extrapolating what he thinks Indy would be up to. I liked that it's not a direct sequel to right, Raiders yeah. in any way. Indy is the only person in it, really. Marcus has got a little bit at the beginning, but there's no Marion, and there's, there's very few references to Raiders. There's one at the end. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it does follow what the films would do, single, episodic adventures. I, uh, I think the fact that Byrne only had Raiders to play off of is one of the strengths of this because, you know, as time went on and we got more indie movies and, and books and things like that, indie to a small degree kind of lost his, his teeth. He kind of lost that, that edge that he had in Raiders where, you know, while he was the hero, he was flat out murdering people. Yeah, I mean, he had no qualms about whipping out his gun and shooting the Arab swordsman or, you know, I mean, yeah, he was much Anybody grittier. who was yeah. on the other side. Yeah, <laughs> and I I think that is very much the indie we have in this story is the indie that, you know, really wouldn't be afraid to just waste somebody that gets on his bad side, whereas we don't really see that you know, in the later indie installments, you know, he's, he's got a softer edge in the later films. And I like that this story has that grit to it that, that Raiders had. I, I think that's one of the great strengths and, and Byrne really captures that feel. Of- At first I, d- I didn't like the fact that he was whipping the, like whipping the cigarette out of the girl's and Mark is like, that's really dangerous, you know, what have you and hit her? And he's like, well, life's full of risks. And it's like, yeah, that girl's life's full of risks. Right. <laughs> Not yours. <laughs> well, that's actually but, my, my favorite uh, my favorite piece of dialogue of the whole issue. Because I was, I was the same way. When this opens with him about to whip that stick or cigarette or whatever out of the girl's mouth, I can remember reading this as a kid and thinking, I don't know about that. Yeah, what if he opened up her face? Well, you yeah, had exactly. you had your whip. You knew what kind of damage oh, that yeah. could do to somebody. But you know, in the in the fourth panel on the second page, he he perfectly sums up exactly why he's doing this. He says, "Without risk, there isn't much point to it all, or much fun either." I just think that's great. I I like the little, you know, you he's got that kind of smirk, you know, like like uh, like Harrison Ford would deliver. My only uh, quibble, and it's a minor one. My only quibble with the art at all in this story is that his 
you know, out of costume indie, you know, Professor Jones indie that he does in this is he's he's far too much David Ban or not David, but uh, Bruce Banner from his Hulk run than he looks like Harrison Ford as you know the professorly Indian. Oh, okay. That's, that's my only quibble is that he doesn't when he's in costume as Indy, he looks like Indiana Jones. When he's you know the professor, he he just he doesn't. He he looks like Banner, you know, from the Hulk. But, but did they have the likeness rights? I'm not sure. I mean, because I think when he, I think when he's in costume with his fedora and the scruff and all that, I think he looks more or less like Harrison Ford. I think he looks. This is going to sound really weird. I think he looks more like Indiana Jones than he looks specifically. No, I know like what you Harrison mean. Ford. And it, that's what makes me wonder if they had Harrison Ford's likeness ah, rights. I got. I see what you're saying. Yeah, because that is sometimes a completely separate issue, isn't it? That sometimes they will buy the property, but they don't have the the likeness rights to the actors. I know when they did the the Marvel did the Battlestar Galactica comic in the late 70s, mm -hmm. they were constantly getting mail from people saying, "Why well, doesn't Starbuck look like Dirt Benedict?" And they actually said in the letters page, "Because Universal, we don't have the likeness rights to the actors. Universal wouldn't sell us those. We have the rights to the characters, so we draw the character, not the actor." And hmm. I thought that was interesting because if you look at the early Star Wars comics, it's a similar thing. Right. But when you get to the later ones, they're very definitely drawing the actors. Certainly when Tom Palmer's on board. You know, you, you, oh, for sure. you pose an interesting question because on a, you know, now that I'm actually flipping through this, I, I think a, a, a very convincing argument could be made that this actually isn't um, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. You know, I, I think you're right. As much He's, as I'm not a fan of the, of the argument that Burn only has a couple of stock faces. In a lot of ways, this kind of does look like one of Burn's stock male faces. And you know, this might actually explain why once he's don you know donned his fedora, there's actually not a lot of really like clear. Uh, well, there's not a lot of clear shots. There's a lot of shadows of yeah, his. Yeah, he's like the hat. Phantom Stranger. Yeah, and the stubble as well. Yeah, yep, the stubble instantly appears as soon as he's got the hat and leather jacket on. He's got like three days stubble too, or maybe he's, Mike, maybe Mike. Indiana Jones is super macho, so that's like five o'clock shadow for him. <laughs> yeah, well, my uh, my only quibble again is a really minor one. He he calls him Doctor Marcus. Yeah, on uh, page two, where it's, uh, surely it should be Doctor Brody, but again, that's only a minor thing. It could that could just be a lettering mistake for all I know. I didn't even catch. I ca caught that he had and called him Doctor Marcus, but you're right. Marcus is his first name. I didn't even didn't even think of that. Yeah, you're right. It would be Doctor Brody. But uh, I think it, the proof that this is so fantastic is that when that's what uh, the only thing we can find wrong with it. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I literally was reading. I was just like in in a state of joy reading this comic when. It came in the mail. I actually got it real cheap on eBay in anticipation of doing the show. And like, as soon as I opened it up, it was just like, oh my God, it's just a treat for the eyes. You know, it's just, it just invites mm. pouring it's, over every panel. And yeah. how have they done that effect on his suit in the first couple of pages when Indy's Professor Jones? What's that effect they've done to his suit? Because it's really good. Yeah, it is. 
It I, really I, does look like tweed, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know what that effect is called, but I know that uh, in one of the early issues of uh, of Burns' run on Superman, there's that issue where Clark Kent is it's opens to Clark Kent running through this. I want to say it's Superman number three, but don't hold me. Yeah, to it's, that. it's it is. Yeah, it's the dark side. Crossover, yeah, isn't he, it? yeah, he's running through the streets and he's wearing a suit very similar to this, and the and the the you can actually feel. The texture yeah. of the material he's wearing. It, it and, might yeah. be some sort of rub-on technique, you know, yeah. where you where you put where you put that, you know, a template of it over it, and they would literally rub it on. I know I've seen some of that effect before with some some forms of gray shading and stuff. Where right, I'm trying to remember what the it was like called Letra Set or something yeah. like that. Yeah, well, maybe it's Austin then, not Burn. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure because, uh, you know, Austin, Austin inked that issue of Superman. Oh, did he? I was thinking yeah, that he was, his uh, first three Supermans. Oh, okay. All well, right, if you yeah, go to it, Austin, then I was thinking go, that was actually a, um, uh, a Kiesel one, but I, I could be wrong. Well, if you go to chapter two on this, the next page after chapter two, there's, uh, the, the two turban thugs are sort of following them to her apartment. And if you look really close, well, if you guys are looking, I don't know if you look at the black and the white and the color, but they're they're just shaded a, a solid blue. Right. But if you look under that blue, that doesn't look like something somebody drew with a pen and ink. It's just got that sort of straight up and down, straight lines. You know what I mean? Right. It's very hard to see because it's in a dark blue. But I think maybe there might be a lot of that going on mm-hmm. in this episode and or episode issue in, in just a, a subtle way. But it is also on top of that meticulously inked. Meticulously, they must have taken, had extra time. You know, it's just got that feel of extra time and effort, and you could just feel that they were trying to get it right. You know, they were trying to do something special. At least, probably John Byrne was. <laughs> well, that. in in that same thing where he talks about the uh, the dealings with Lucasfilm, he actually says he had tons of ideas for this. He had tons of stories, story ideas for Indiana Jones, and it being set in the 30s as well, like one of his his favourite time periods. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's something that we never got. We never got any more of his ideas. I wonder if he was doing it nowadays. If that stuff is sort of loosened up, you know, it, now that like, you know, there there is possibly going to be another indie movie, but they, I don't think they hold it as such a secretive thing anymore you know it seems that the it, it seems at least that way with the star wars comics that are going now that that you know they're able to put out so many of them they can't have mm. that you know i mean it seemed like lucasfilm sticking their nose in it sort of brought the all the marvel tie-ins to us a, a, a standstill or at least stunted them yeah. Uh, well, he he said the thing that kept him away from doing Star Trek for so long was that he thought all licensing work was going to be as awful as this. And, and then they he, don't care what Star Trek, huh? <laughs> they yeah, just well, let no, anybody go. He, he said his liaison with Paramount when he did Star Trek at IDW was was a dream. He said she was wonderful to deal with in that she knew her, her Star Trek and actually picked him up on a few things. And he was like, oh, God, yeah, how could I have forgot that? And the only reason he stopped doing Star Trek comics is because IDW have moved more to the, the new 2009 continuity, which he's right. got no interest in. Because he did have another Assignment Earth miniseries planned, 
and another Dr. McCoy miniseries. Oh, God bless John Byrne. And he's, he's kind of like, they probably won't happen now. Well, I, I just want to go on record right now. If there's anybody from Lucasfilm and or Dark Horse listening, I will pay serious hard cash for a John <laughs> Byrne written and illustrated Indiana Jones series set in the 30s, 40s, or even especially the 50s. Because if you've ever seen his work on, what was the name of that? Alien or Aliens, Earth Angel, where yep. it's, it's a science fiction story set in the 50s where Ridley Scott's Alien comes to Earth. That yep. is some awesome shit. And I would love to see an Indiana Jones story Similar to that, I think that could I, be. I want to see great. him in World War Two. Burn can do that. Yes. I, Ooh, I mean, that would be nice. Oh. Yes. Oh, how oh. awesome would a would a would a Captain America Indiana Jones story set in World War Two be? Can yeah. I just tell the people from Lucasfilm and Dark Horse also that to hear Scott say that he'll spend hard-earned money on something, that's really <laughs> saying something. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, I have to put this in context so you know. <laughs> yes, I am in the. T- um, um, uh, and my favorite panel in this book, I mean, it doesn't have bloody page numbers, which irritates me. Yeah, I know. It's in chapter two. One, two, three, four. Five, Those page six, numbers four. would take up too much art space. <laughs> they had so much art to cram into this. Uh, page six of chapter two. Panel four. Where he's, he's trapped down in the, the, the door. Trap doors opened underneath him in true heroic fashion he's fallen into the pit mm-hmm. and he's illuminated only by the match that's a fantastic piece of art and actually is a really good coloring job in an issue where some of the coloring is a bit gauche specific particularly the backgrounds on panels where there's no wow see background i art. i really like the uh i really like the coloring in this although i will agree that uh, so there are some panels where it's a little too bright for such a gritty yeah, story page yeah page two has pretty much yellow but that panel I that you li- just I like were... the rats and, and yeah that page. But yeah that panel that you no, were just referring rats. to where he's lighting the match i kept looking at that going I've seen this. Where have I seen this? And I think it finally just hit me. Have you ever read that story? I cannot remember what the name of it is, but it's illustrated by Neil Adams. It's a classic Batman story where Batman's in the haunted house and Robin, he, he finds Robin and he, and he's holding Robin in his arms and Robin actually dissolves. And then there's a part where he finds himself in the dark and I think he lights a match or a torch or something, and it's lit the same way. And then the walls start closing. And it's it's this classic, like, the villain is screwing with Batman's mind kind of story. But it's... Is, it, is, that, it's a, is that the house that haunted Batman? That's it. That's the one. Yes. Yes, that's it. I remember the cover you mean. He, he kind of turns into a skeleton on the cover, doesn't yes, he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've read the interior, but there's a very famous cover. Yeah, well, the, there's a, a, a part in the interior of that where where Batman finds himself alone in the dark, and again he lights a it's either a match or a or a flashlight or torch or something, and it's I'm gonna look that up. It's just like this panel. It's he's he's very Crushed sparsely illuminated, and it's all orange like that. And he walks into a room and he's um, 
a witness to his own funeral as like the Justice League and, and Commissioner Gordon stand around his casket reminiscing, but they're all saying really mean things about Batman, like how they never really liked him and he was such a you know, like prima donna to wish bag. Yes. Yeah, and it, it is a good <laughs> He was gay story. and <laughs> stupid head. And he had stupid hair. <laughs> and he had a fat head. <laughs> Speaking of fat heads, I like, uh, what's this dude's name? Something, something. Solomon, Solomon Black. Black. Solomon Black, yeah, he is. He's cool. <laughs> I actually like him. He reminded me of Katanga from Live and Let Die. He's Katanga <laughs> yes. like in the he's like Katanga and the Kingpin mixed together. So yeah. he's got a gold tooth and everything. Yeah, and he's sort of little Uncle Scrooge in there too, sitting around in his money vault. Now you think he does yeah. that laugh, that seven up laugh? Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> yes, he does. He has a hearty laugh. You know, all fat people have hearty laughs, don't you know that? <laughs> they're all jolly. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. He's jolly. <laughs> I like when, I like when they get to the island. The one guy gets you know peppered with arrows, and the other guy's just like, "All right, you guys go ahead. I'll wait here." I'm like that. That's very realistic. Moving back just slightly, um, I did have one quibble. This isn't so much really an art quibble as a physics quibble, but um, I, I I can't help it. I gotta point it out. It's the page where where. Edith has just been thrown out the window. Indy runs to the window and expects to see her splatted on the street below, but she's okay. She's being carted away by one of the bad guys. And he goes for his whip, and there's that great panel of him whipping the overhang and swinging down, except the whip doesn't work that way. If you look at the the speed line showing the direction from which he's whipping the whip, the whip should be wrapping around the overhang in the opposite direction. There's no way it could actually be wrapping the direction it's wrapping with him having swung. Not with right those two, yeah. right? Not with those two, two so close together. Yeah, it would have whacked I mean, off the other one. Well, see, he's, he's <laughs> whipping the whip right to left, but the whip is wrapping around the overhang left to right. Oh, and, and okay. That can't happen. There's, <laughs> there's, it's physically impossible. Yes. <laughs> I know it's geeky, but I have to point these things out. But he does, when he lands, it does say Grunch. Grunch. <laughs> the Grunch that's the whole Christmas. That's the sound when you land in a fruit cart in a movie. Grunch. It's almost like something Chewy would, would say. <laughs> Grunch. <laughs> I miss sound effects in comics. There's, there's things... I, what I like about this is there's parts of it like where he falls through the trap door onto the mattress and slides down there where you sort of fill in the blanks. If this was a Spielberg movie, that would be a sequence right there. Right. And they would, they would not do it in the comic cause you couldn't do it, but it would be like, wah down this whole thing on a, on a mattress. And you just sort of naturally fill in those, those blanks in this. Now I like the, uh, the page where Indy and uh, Black have their little Mexican standoff. There's a great panel of, of Indy just kind of twirling his gun and saying, okay, you got me over a barrel, basically. That's a great panel. Mm -hmm. That page ends where the captain is stabbing a point in the map and saying, uh, 
you know, this island, you know, if you're to believe, you know, it says, if your maps are be to be believed, the island we seek is right about in the, uh, here in the middle of empty ocean. That's where the British reprint ends or the British version, I should say. Oh, not even on a chapter. Oh, that's yeah, weird. It ends right there. Now the oh, no, next we just used to cut things in the middle for no readily explained reason. <laughs> well, the, uh, the next panel, the top of the next page where they're at the rail of the, of the ship, staring out at the ocean and there's that wispy island off in the distance totally reminds king kong. me of king kong yes it does there's a lot of king kong once they get onto the island yeah. there's this there's a scene where he's pulling her up a slope and you and just the background of that and the tree overhanging him with the moss reminds me of of king kong quite a bit mm-hmm. i'm sure purposely so i love i love i love the the ship graveyard too. I, yeah. I love stuff like yeah. that. I love the old sea captain too. You only get one frame of him, but he's just, <laughs> just the perfect stare. He looks like one of those wood carvings of the, you know, he looks a little thing, bit like EJ Smith to me. The only just thing missing bit. is, is a pipe, you know, coming out, you know, a <laughs> pipe coming out of the corner of his mouth. You idiot. You can't some spinach. a pipe. <laughs> exactly. And, and the spinach. <laughs> But it's great because John Byrne was like, oh, yeah, okay, we need a sea captain, and it's Indiana Jones, so he's got to be, you know, just your your stereotype. Indiana Jones is a place for stereotypes. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, the, well, the, the old priests, the old gibbering priests and the, the, the turban thugs and the, you know, drooling Nazis, you know, the sadistic Nazis and... And Burn Burn knows that he just knows it. <laughs> yeah, well, he he throws every cliche in the book into this. Yeah. The bad guy with the gold tooth and the trap doors and everything, but it works. That's it what makes it work so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, 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 he this is a place for that. <laughs> yeah, he he understood very well that Raiders of the Lost Ark was you know, an homage to the classic cliffhanger serials that in, you know, Raiders in a lot of ways, you know, threw every cliche in the book in there and made it work as well. And, and burn is just doing essentially the same thing without following a formula or, or without making it, you know, excessive or silly. And, and I, I think it works beautifully. I really do. Mm. Yeah. It's a great issue. It really is. Now, do you remember our origin story on this, Chris? Because I think we discovered this together, didn't we? We probably got this at the books at the cigar oh, uh, champagne cigar shop in Carthage, probably. I, I know that's where I bought it because I can remember. You know, again, you got to remember this is way back in the early '80s. This is back in the days well before you know the internet and solicits and you know knowing what was coming along. I remember just literally walking into that store to check out what the new books were for the week or month or whatever. And this was just there, just boom, out of the blue. Here's Indiana Jones number one. I was like, holy cow, and snapping yep. it up and just going, oh, this is gorgeous and thinking it was awesome. But I s- seem to remember that we were there together for that. A- am I it's very, correct? It's very possible. Oh, geez, I don't remember. I think we were. Because I, th- you know, I I seem to remember you really geeking out hard about this. Because well, you were you were a bigger Indiana Jones fan than than I, I was. A, I was a big Indiana Jones fan, and that was when Mike Cross was house sitting for his neighbor Adam Blake, and he arranged a deal between me and Adam Blake where I got all the 
original Burn in Austin X Men, <clears throat> the dark you know the Dark Phoenix style right stuff. So I was <clears throat> immediately really into that artwork, and when I saw it was Burn in Austin again, you know it was it it was a yeah this was a I remember. You know, being like, okay, I was always a little sketchy with stuff like this with the comics because you never knew what you were getting. But yeah, once all you had to do is open it up to the first first couple pages, and you knew that it was it was quality. Yeah, I remember I remember us flipping out over the first two issues, and then being just like crestfallen that that John Byrne was gone after that. Now. I can't remember who was immediately after him, but it was somebody really good <laughs> after him too. I'm like Carrie Gamble, is it Carrie Gamble? Carrie Gamble falls is straight after him. I think I know he does a number of early issues, and then Chaykin does one or two, possibly. I got the I got the first three issues, and I can't remember. See, I was thinking who it was. Herb Trimpey was on number three. I know Herb Trimpey comes in at some point, and I remember being very disappointed. But keep I'm keep actually, talking. I'll run and get it. I'm actually looking forward to the uh, the um, Gene Day. Oh right. Ah yes, yeah. Because I, I I remember looking at number three, and I'm like, oh yeah, here's where it went downhill, and then I opened it up, I'm like. No, Gene Day, and I probably was like disappointed when it, uh, with it at first, just because it wasn't John Byrne, you right? Know? But now he that I'm looking three. at this, is it Michelini? It was Denny O'Neill. All right, oh, issue uh, issue three, right? So Denny O'Neill mustn't have stuck around for a long time then. So did it just have a revolving door of creative? Yes, then? it did, and that was one of the things right. that really hurt it was that. Yeah, they, they, they could not keep any sort of consistent uh, writer or artist team going on that book. And but sometimes I, you got some really, there's some really clunky art in the future. Yeah, this, there if is. I recall right. But see, I, I would rather the, so that was down to, to Lucasfilm then. Could be. It, it could be other, other artists and, and or writers had the same reaction to the problems with Lucas that, that, burn had which was they just didn't want to deal with it and you know so they only lasted a you know an arc and then they were gone or something like that but uh see i remember not really appreciating carrie gamill back then but now i'm really looking forward to that stuff because uh because well, i'm thinking really we might have a little better time with it now now that we're you know right right have a little distance on it right see i was excited for this because I you know I was still in the early stages of of discovering Burn at the time when this book came out you know and and I was excited to see this because not too long before this let's see this this issue is dated January 1983 back in the April 1982 issue of Fantastic 4 which is really where I discovered John Byrne for myself was with his run on Fantastic Four. I was never an X-Men fan, so I was kind of like vaguely tangentially aware of of X-Men, but I never really associated Byrne with X-Men. As weird as that is, because for everybody else, that's like the big thing that John Byrne did was, you know, oh, John Byrne you know, and, uh, and uh, Chris Claremont, X-Men, X-Men. I, I missed that whole thing. I, I just... Somehow it just breezed past me. So I, for me, John Byrne starts with Fantastic Four. And in issue 241, there was this story where it starts out and uh, 
the FF go off on some mission for something. They're going to Wakanda or something, and they get in their pogo plane and they're flying along. And on the third page, um, Ben Grimm comes walking into the cockpit of the pogo plane and he's dressed as Indiana Jones. And it's really great. And, uh, and Johnny storm says, I don't believe it. It's Idaho Smith himself. He yeah. says, and Reed Richards is face palming. And he's going, Ben, he goes, somehow, I don't think we're going to find the Ark of the covenant. And it, it was just great. And, you know, like two or three panels later, they land and, and his outfit gets ripped off of him by these natives that attack. So that's as long as the gag lasted in that issue but it was just enough to kind of whet my appetite. And, and when I saw this issue on the stands and it was Byrne doing, you know, an actual Indiana Jones adventure, I was just, I was totally down for that because that story in FF is essentially an Indiana Jones style adventure, but with the FF instead of, mm-hmm. it, you know, but it, yeah. it's just a great little story. I remember that one. Well, so did you notice the, um, part of this comic that that ties our whole star wars monthly monday together yes i did there is a beautiful house ad let's see where is it here i i assume right this is what you're referring to yep yep the very end we got the house ad full page splash house ad for a graphic novel by chris claremont and bob mcleod coming this fall to a comic store near you the new mutants and uh, that is a, that really is an awesome. I think that might actually be the cover. That's the cover of the to, graphic novel. Yeah, I thought yeah, I thought it was more or less. I think there's a little more paintiness to the the cover. But oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. That actually may be why. I like I how that up, worked out. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that may be why I ended up picking up. New Mutants is because I probably saw this ad and was just like, wow, that's, that, you know, because, again, I had no interest at all in uh, in X-Men or anything X-Men related, but I did uh, get into New Mutants on the ground floor, and I'm sure it was because the art was just gorgeous, you know? That really is a nice image. I'm sure that this was more than likely where I first saw, you know, anything about New Mutants, I'm sure, because I sure wasn't reading X-Men. right. That was when that was when they were just starting to get the inkling of the thought of like maybe we should make more X Men <laughs> comics and we see where that went. Oh yeah. Well, I like uh, I like how the story you know the the nice little cliffhanger here, but I I love this moment as we see there's just a great shot of the priest lowering the chain and we see the the bubbling molten gold and we see their their feet come into the panel and then the, almost their full body and then their full body and they're like you know maybe like what like two feet above the the pit and uh either it's the same dr jones do something and i just love the line he just i'm working on it because <laughs> i can totally hear him saying that you know right right out of the movie i'm working on it well let me go graphic design nerd on this last page here because it's just awesome you got your three. You got your three long panels on the top, but then at the bottom you just have like sort of a cinematic reaction shot of the cutting away to the the icons, which are screaming because by now we figured out they're actual people that got dipped into gold. But if you look at them, if you look at how they're they're spaced out, and then you look at the priests above it, 
they're sort of mirroring the priests. You can't really see it in the third yeah, frame. Yeah, yeah. But they're, it's it's just beautifully designed set and the the angles at which the the um, beams, the timbers of the the temple are going in sort of not opposite directions, but kind of conflicting. It's just very well thought out and designed, and it and it carries the eyes with it. And it does very cinematic thing. It's a very cinematic page while still being comic-like. You know, it has a cutaway shot and it has, you know, the sort of linear them being lowered down into the pit. It's very, very, very nice. And also a bit icky. Yes, that's when he, when as he it should the, be. Yeah, and the pages before he discovers there are human bones inside it. Ooh, I think that gave me the creeps when I was a kid. It did. It did. Now that I was thinking about it, I'm like, I don't know if that's exactly how that would pan out. There would might be a little more gristle and stuff. You know, it might not work out that well. But that image of you know the leg breaking off and and human legs going tang a dang a dang out of it is just a great. You could see it in a Spielberg movie. You could totally see how Spielberg would would do that scene. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And. Uh, it's neat. Although I, t- t- for the life of me, Indiana Jones should know that a solid gold casting human size like that would weigh like <laughs> ten times his weight. You know, it's like oh, I think I'll just—he's pulling it off towards him. It would just like fall onto him and crush him. And it's gold, so it would be all—it would probably be all bent up and broken. But yeah, you know, I'll let—I'll let that go because it's a comic-y book. <laughs> It's a funny book. Yeah. Uh, the bottom panel on that page, I just love that panel, I don't know why, where Indy gets cold cocked from behind. He gets clapped. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> why I like that panel, I just think it's great. I think it's the detail on his hat. It's the detail on his hat, and, and if you look at his mouth, it looks mm. like he's been hit on the back of his head, and his lip has been, like, <laughs> <laughs> pushed forward by the, you know, the, the force of the blow. He's got that sort of, like, Ugh. <laughs> of somebody just about to go out. I can't believe I was this stupid fess. <laughs> it's probably with Indiana Jones. It's probably his, he's his probably last thought at those moments is just like not again. <laughs> That's what I would think. <laughs> any of those de- any any hard boiled detective or man of adventure, whenever they get knocked out, they should be thinking, "Ah, oh, Christ, not again." <laughs> Well, the last thing I wanted to mention on this, unless you guys have anything else, I'll take that as a no. A no! (laughs) Is uh, I did some digging around today, and I can't Uh believe it. I still have it after all these years. And I actually found it uh, in a box in the garage. I have here the the actual role-playing game rules booklet for TSR's The Adventures of Indiana Jones role-playing game. Oh, you mean game. The, the booklet that Randy used to just ignore <laughs> just all the ignore, time? Just ignore, yes, and just mock and do whatever the hell he wanted to. Yes, that's the one. And I always got the biggest kick out of this, that the fact that this was your rule book, you know, this was basically laying out everything that was in the game and, and the world of Indiana Jones for you to basically play Dungeons and Dragons, but with an Indiana Jones overlay and the introductory adventure that came in the book so that you actually had one game to play before you, know, you could start buying modules was a story called the Icons 
of Ikamanin, and it is a straight-up adaptation of this story by John Byrne. John Byrne is actually credited in this as uh, as the story, and it does a nice little prose, you know, recap of what the adventure is, and and tells you basically how to set up the game and actually play this story as a role-playing adventure. And I just, I always thought that that was really cool that, uh, you know, this in my mind made this like an official, you know, Indiana Jones story. You know what I mean? I mean, now Uh now it had been elevated from just a simple comic book story that now it actually was a a piece of Indiana Jones canon. And I I always thought that was really great. Licensed by Marvel and then re-licensed by TSR. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Makes it official. Yeah, well, there's nothing that's ever contradicted it, is there? No, no. I I think it, that the the that's the good thing about Indiana Jones is you you can sort of really play fast and loose. He doesn't end. You know, it's like James Bond. It's not like you have to worry. He didn't get married to Marion or anything. You don't have to worry about bringing back any other character except really him and Marcus. But Marcus just you know comes in to see three PO around and then he's gone. You know, right? So. So you can almost do any as long as you. The, and the thing about in, Indiana Jones is you plunk him down at the end, and he there he is, you know, ready for something new, you know. And you you assume that he had so many adventures that it's you don't really have to worry about referencing any past ones or anything like that. Mm. So there's something to be said for the episodic nature of this, isn't there? Oh yeah, yeah. That you can tell whatever story you want as long as you put him back where he was at the end of it. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I think that's all we got uh, this time around. Is that all you got? (laughs) We'll have to have you back, uh, Andy, to talk about uh, part two, the the conclusion to this exciting little tale, because uh, I remember that one being pretty darn good as as well. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. you're you're, you're a good kid. We'll let you on the show again. (laughs) You did did good, kid. You did good. Thanks, Mr. Honeywell. Can I have my snack now? Hey, don't... Hey, later, kid. Don't mention it. (laughs) Just be happy we ain't beating you up. (laughs) Again. Again. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. 
We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. Andy. Hey, and here comes Andy. Oh, nice. More Stanley Kubrick. What? Oh, wait. No, that's Kit. Never mind. <laughs> you dumbass. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to bring the chimney sweep in? Oi! <laughs> Poor blimey. Up the apples and pears, round the elephant and castle. <laughs> well, it might be missing a few teeth, but it can show jigger the old lady, right? <laughs> right? I got blisters on my fingers. Core. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, didn't I just talk to you for like five hours? Yeah, but you can't get enough, can you? No, honest? I can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't quit you. Oh, one, two, three. Oh, no more, no more quoting Brokeback Mountain. I'm <laughs> recording now. I've never seen Brokeback Mountain. And that can't make it into the show. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> You're editing this one. Yes, that's right. And that shit's going straight to the the floor of the editing room. <laughs> straight to the waste paper basket. Oh, you're no fun anymore. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> Hello, Christopher. How you doing? I'm Tickety Boo. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm super. Excellent. Fantastic, actually. Let's play it up. <laughs> I'm super. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Is that going to make it? I don't know about that. <laughs> Oh, super sweet. <laughs> oh. <sighs> yeah, that's... people. I haven't forgot weird. about the Attack the Block show either, by the way. What? I'm good. What? That's something Andy and I have been planning behind your back, Scott, unless you want to ah, get, get a copy of Attack the Block and you're in, man. There's always got to be talking shit behind my back. That's all right. That's all you'd right. Enjoy, you'd enjoy... You'd enjoy Attack the Block. Where did I write down? There's my synopsis. I 
Is that how you pronounce it? Well, that's how I read it. I came in. <laughs> I could be wrong. I speak it with an accent. Chris, uh, Andy was telling me that that gorgeous cover to uh, Star Wars Weekly 167 was a poster over there. Ooh. I gots to have me one. It's pretty. I just like seeing Indiana Jones and R2-D2 together, honestly. And R2-D2's on the <laughs> side with the Nazis, too, the little bastard. He's a traitor to he would. people. I don't believe R2 would turn traitor. He's he's always Archie's always working the the <laughs> other side. Because yeah. yeah, the droids can always just sort of like sneak in and sneak out no matter what. I think that C three PO bastard's more likely to turn. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, he would have they they would have had him at the Nuremberg trials and yeah. he would have just been like, I was just following orders. I would they, he's, uh, he's got the British accent, so he's halfway there already. He's almost a Nazi, yeah. <laughs> I saw the first five minutes of that Nazis on the Moon movie, yeah, and it looked it looked pretty cheesy. Oh yeah, it looks like they're going for the snakes on the plane angle of it. But I don't know. It was really cheesy, you know, like when the astronaut sees the Nazi base, it is in the shape of a swastika, of course. All right. To appease so. me, and you know that's important. Oh, great. <laughs> you need to start incorporating pictures that are actually relevant to the fucking topic for a change. So I'm sending you this one so that you can do so. Not that I haven't liked your pictures, because I have. I've been just going for a more expressionistic Star Wars uh-huh. iconic feel. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Lazy bastard. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research on a character for that Illuminati book, and I've been doing research into the people, the the preppers, the people who... Sergeant preppers? The people who prep are prepping for the coming apocalypse. Wee-haw! Oh, my God. Fun, fun, fun. I, found, <laughs> I, learned, I learned today that if you want to stock food away real cheap, or if you just like cheap dehydrated food, you know... The Mormons are the ones to go to. They, 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 the Mormons are required to like stock a year's worth of food in their houses, and uh, what? So that yeah, yeah, that's part of their you know Ugh. their thing, and so they have these huge companies that like dehydrate apples and put them in big cans, and you can go get like three hundred and fifty pounds. You you pay by it's like two hundred dollars for three hundred and fifty pounds of food or something like that, and it's just all in generic boxes. But it, you know it's apples and pasta and rice and beans and you know stock sort of foods to stock away for when the world goes Mad Max. Awesome, and, but we'll all have cool cars. <laughs> I know. Well, I'll have dune buggies. It'll be awesome. Did I already talk to you about doing the Road Warrior? I want to do the Road Warrior bad. Yeah, because I have a feeling that that. Movie I mean, I want to do. The, I mean, I want to do the movie Road well, Warrior bad. Yeah, yeah. Nah, I, I, I uh, that movie can't go wrong for me. I love that. That movie is like poetry to me. <laughs> <laughs> just a, uh, it, it, it's just the hair in the. It's just the hair makes him look like '80s, but that's. Hilarious. 
Ba-bum. Oh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, I hope you're recording all this. Yes. I got a million of them. That's what I'm afraid of. All right. Do you want me to bring this in? Um, No, because you're doing the synopsis. Okay. So I'll bring it back. <clears throat> all right. Are we ready? Uh, okay. <laughs> yep. That answers that. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so here we go. <laughs> now, this is 40, right? Yes. Okay. Lordy, lordy. Damn, lordy, lordy. Star Wars Monthly Monday is 40. All right, here we go. <clears throat> God damn it, what's wrong with my throat? Let me take a drink real quick. Mountain Dew always fixes me right up. That brominated vegetable oil. Yeah. What? Okay. <laughs> Stop it. Now you give me the giggles, goddammit. <laughs>